Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. It's August 2023 and things are much the same as always, except the weather is appalling. We're here to get you through the month with a big helping of cinematic content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. It's good to be back. We aim to provide you with the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. We divide each monthly issue into three parts, which we release a week at a time to keep your feed fed through the month. This is the first part of the episode, Double Real Monthly. We'll look at recent film news, what new releases are heading our way, and review any new films we've seen since the last episode. We'll also discuss how we're getting on with the film-related resolutions we made for 2023. Next week, we'll deliver our regular features, Classics and Recommended, Hidden Gem, The One That Got Away, and the remake, Hate Watch. The following week, it'll be The Big Conversation, where we talk about a topic from the world of film in more detail. We'll tell you more about that later. And there are more details about all of our features on our various social media channels. If you want to check that out or comment on the podcast, you can find us on Twitter on at Double Real Film. I suppose we should call that X now. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can follow us on letterbox.com slash double real, where we list all the films we've discussed in the podcast and much more besides. You can also find the Double Real Podcast on the new social media platforms Threads and Mastodon. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Now it's time to dim the lights and take your seats for our latest Double Real Monthly. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Double Real Monthly is the first part of the episode and gives you a regular digest of news, new releases and how we've been fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. In the next hour and a bit, you'll get a breakdown of what's going on in the world of film this month that will set you up for your own movie watching. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2023. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Also, just to quickly mention our other podcast, which you might like to check out. The Adamson's Versus is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news, and anything else that has caught our attention. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus Tales from the Campfire, is out now. And after a brief summer break, we hope to bring you a new episode soon. With that piece of self-promotion out of the way, let's look at some of the messages we received from listeners. Stuart responds to last month's episode with Jesus. I didn't even know there was a remake of The Fog. What was the point? It's not like the original needed a special effects upgrade or anything. I can never understand the point of doing stuff like this. Laura adds, I love the original version of The Fog, The Pirate's Rule. And Tony, friend of the pod, reacted to last month's classic A Tale of Two Sisters, The Poster is Terrifying. My sister joined in with a comment on the penalty shootout film quiz. It's a bit of a family affair, this podcast. The next loser of the quiz should be made to watch Diana the Musical, available on Netflix. I always knew she had a cruel streak. I've already fucking watched that. I'm not watching that again. (laughs) I didn't even watch all of it. I watched three minutes and was I, I wish I was in that tunnel in Paris in 1997 that was fucking dreadful <laughs> we have a verdict already um 
We're going to be talking about Oppenheimer later. Uh, George said, mesmerizing. The acting is incredibly good. The best compliment I can give it is you completely forgot it was Killian Murphy, Robert Downey Jr., Emily Blunt, etc. You just saw the characters. Lots of people agreeing with that. Charlie added, even Josh Hartnett didn't mess it up. Nolan is a wizard. Did get the occasional less enthusiastic comment like Ardy saying, uh, very interesting, but the last half hour kind of dragged for me. That has been part of like the wider public discussion, I think. Um, would have preferred it as a series with more added in about the process of making the bomb. Uh, JJ says, a bit too arty for my taste. I enjoyed the lead up to the Trinity test, but the rest was about self-indulgent. But on the whole, overwhelmingly positive comments. Uh, People also uh, had a few things to say about Barbie. Uh, Schmitty says, 6 out of 10 at a push. Was expecting a lot more given the cast and filmmaker involved. Morney, on the other hand, thoroughly enjoyed it. Gosling is amazing as Ken and should do more comedy. And Kate McKinnon was good as well. Nice smattering of random British actors in the cast. And a good summary from PJ. Fun film with a message. Feminist without being anti-men. For all the stuff about patriarchy, you also see that Barbie Land is the ultimate matriarchy, and that isn't ideal either. Shame the audience is 90% women, because any men watching it would get some very good insights into how the world looks from their point of view. But it also warns against completely emasculating men and treading all over them, which I think is a really good summary of the film overall. Uh, Ian weighed in on this month's Cronenberg entry, Cosmopolis. Pretentious shite, is all he had to say about it. Very concise. So the first thing we normally uh, cover after our little intros there on uh, Double Room Monthly is the news, what's been going on in the world. Uh, it's not necessarily going to be up to the minute, although we are recording quite close to a release date this time. Uh, James, what news has caught your eye? Uh, I've obviously, William Friedkin's passed away. Yeah, that was my top topic as well. And then, I don't know if we covered this the last time, but Kevin Spacey effectively got away with it. I think... I can't remember if we did. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, covering William Friedkin briefly, he is uh, one of the people who won the 70s, shall we say. is The films that he's most famous for are, you know, are, are particularly the ones that came out then. Um, French Connection, uh, The Exorcist, Sorcerer, and kind of cruising is 1980, but it feels, it feels like a film from the end of the 70s rather than a film at the start of the 80s, you know what I mean? He did do some uh, some good films after that, but you know that he was never quite at the absolute heights uh, as then. Very interesting filmmaker, and I was going to suggest, mate, we're doing this kind of live inverted commas, that next month's uh, big conversation is maybe a spotlight on him, just as a bit yeah. of a retrospective in his career. Yeah, with the Kevin Spacey thing, um, it's a bit unsatisfactory for everyone, isn't it? Um, because he he made himself look so weird and unsympathetic in response to the original allegations and said, "Oh, I may have done some things that were a bit out of order, and I'm you know I'm sorry to anyone I upset. By the way, I'm gay," as if that was going to deflect things, and the gay community did not appreciate that. And now for the case to collapse because obviously the burden of proof in a criminal trial is is you know rightly quite high. It feels like it feels like no one's got anywhere. I mean, if he has mistreated anyone, they've not got justice, and this verdict isn't really going to take the stink away from Kevin Spacey's name, is it? Oh, no. No, no. He's he's not going to get another role. If he does, by a, like a big studio, a big director, I'll be very surprised. Yeah. But I don't think he's... I think him... I think he's done in Hollywood. I think he's gone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying it's a shame, because I think if he's innocent... This hasn't cleared his name, and if he's guilty, then it's a miscarriage of justice. So it, it, shit happens. I think it's it's all of a piece with the because there are so many historic allegations. Because it used to be really really hard to bring any of these out. I think we're going to get a lot of this unsatisfactory kind of outcome. Um, maybe going forward, the fact that I think hopefully t- I'm touching wood as I say this. 
hopefully the next time someone has something, well, that it's going to be less likely to happen in the first instance. But secondly, if someone does have a complaint, it's going to be dealt with more decisively while it's still fresh. Do you know what I mean? And then I think it's more likely to get a, a, an outcome satisfactory one way or the other. But this is just, these this shit's just going to hang over Hollywood for a while now. Hollywood and the British theatre industry, I guess. Any other any other news caught your eye? Um, no, those were the big two. Um, Shall we talk quickly? I mean, I know it's been discussed heavily, but I think the Barbenheimer phenomenon has been quite significant for the box office. It's been it's turned out to be quite a big thing, hasn't it? I know people have been discussing it as live over the past sort of four weeks since both films got released, but it's been quite something, hasn't it? The whole idea of Barbie and Oppenheimer ruling almost like ruling the box office together, mate. Yeah, I mean, I think Barbie's been a lot more successful than Oppenheimer um, in th- terms of. Yeah, but I, th- I think th- I think you know success versus expectations. I think they've both got a lot more than they were than they could have dreamed of. You know. Yeah, I mean, they've both made a boatload of cash, um, but Barbie must be. I think Oppenheimer last time I checked was around seven hundred million. Yeah, this is Christopher Nolan's biggest box office success that didn't have Leonardo DiCaprio or Batman in it. That's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, considering the, the, the subject matter, it's R-rated, which is, uh, you know, makes your box office um, prospects a little bit more challenging in America. It's a historical drama about a guy who's not you know, not exactly e- easy to get along with. And even though Nolan is known for challenging and ambitious filmmaking styles, that was still a tough sell, you know? And I think they've done really, really well to have made as much money out of it. And Barbie's Barbie is about if it, it's 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 closing in a one point three billion, which if it keeps going, just even for another few more weeks, it's going to sneak into the top twenty uh, box office hits of all time. So they've both done incredibly well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's strange that two films that came out on the same day between the two of them can generate two billion dollars. Yeah, and that, you don't and, see that very often. Yeah, and that's the other thing is I think the 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 the, the individual marketing campaign for um, Barbie in particular has been praised, hasn't it, for how cleverly they marketed it. I mean, they turned a house in Malibu into the Malibu Beach House with tons of pink paint. Done lots of very clever um, marketing. Obviously, there are fewer merchandising opportunities with Oppenheimer. You're not going to get a Killian Murphy action figure, right? But I think Oppenheimer just went. This is going to be good. This is Nolan. This is about the nuclear bombs. You know, they just did what they had to do. But it's it's the it's the joining of the two of them together, which I think Hollywood has taken real notice of. Um, you know, jokingly, you know, after Barbenheimer, maybe the next one's going to be Saw Patrol because someone's noticed that a Saw sequel and a Paw Patrol sequel are coming out on the same day. There's not really any audience crossover there, though, is there? Um, but, you know, I think what Hollywood's looking at is how can we make that happen again, you know? But I don't think Hollywood's very good at viral marketing and making memes happen because memes either happen or they don't, you know? But I think they're definitely looking at that and going, how do we do this again? How can we make the box office tick like this again? Can can the marketing people learn anything from this, you know? Yeah. I think in terms of who's won and who's lost, I guess the, the, the people who lost in this isn't Barbie or Oppenheimer. After all that discussion of who's going to win the box office out of those two, they both won. And I think Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1's the loser, isn't it? Yeah, how much did that make in the end? It's... At the moment, it's on 541. I think they're going to persevere and try and keep it in the screens for a bit longer, but I think they're close to being done. And 
box office is pretty hard to kind of judge because this film's going to have a long life. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be buying this on Blu-ray. People are going to be streaming it and all that sort of thing. It's going to get shown on TV. So I don't think it's going to lose money overall, but I think they were expecting it to be a bigger hit. And it, in terms of, it needs, it need, I think it needed to make somewhere between six and 700 million to make, to break even on its box office run. So it's not being as successful as it needed to be. Now, 100 million of their problem is the fact that this film costs 291 million, which is a good 100 million more than every other Mission Impossible film's ever cost. And that's COVID, right? So they can't do anything about that. And I don't think they'll worry too much about that. But th someone needs a kick in for not like changing the release date, right? Yeah, I mean, those two films, Barbie and Oppenheimer, were always going to dominate because one's a Christopher Nolan film and Barbie has. Um, Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig behind it. Greta Gerwig's been generating a massive buzz ever since she did Little Women. Yeah, exactly. So and and Margot Margot and Margot Robbie thing. and Margot Robbie's been waiting for like this something like this to really kind of send her in at the stratosphere, right? Yeah, I mean, well, Margot Robbie like has obviously got a bit of a name for herself, and she's only what 32, 33? something and everyone, like that. Yeah, she's been in massive films, so. I think the people who went to do Mission Impossible, they could if they just released it like in the middle of June. Well, well, it'd have been fine. Well, here's the thing, right? IMAX is. I was reading this the other day. IMAX is reported to have begged, and the word they used is begged, Paramount to change the release date to give it a clear run at the box office. Yeah, because obviously they were going to do a lot of Oppenheimer screening. Yeah, and 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 they refused. Uh, as a result, they got nine days before the release of Barbie and Oppenheimer. And the vast majority of the money that Mission Impossible's made worldwide is like before those two films get released. So if they if they get released a month earlier, they're going to clean up, right? Um, I heard an interview with an industry insider. There's a really good podcast called The Town that comes from the Ringer Network. And an industry insider on there said they might have been trying to avoid a clash with Indiana Jones 5. But that's a what? Huge well, that's a huge mistake. I, I've got to say, I know before, right, before the films come out, you'd be looking at, oh, let's avoid Indiana Jones 5 because maybe there's a lot of nostalgia for Indiana Jones. But Indiana Jones 5 with an eight-year-old Harrison Ford, I'd back a, 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 a Mission Impossible film against that any day of the week. They would have drunk Indy's milkshake, right? Um, but there was no stopping Barbenheimer. So they've made a terrible, terrible error. They released that the same day as, as Indiana Jones, they would have made the money that they wanted to make. They would have made a billion. And they'd have, they'd have sailed off and said, good luck, Barbenheimer. Yeah, Tom Cruise is off to watch you at the pictures. We're done, you know? Sail off in, you know, sail off looking happy. They they fucked up. So somebody's fucked up, right? Yeah, uh, that's that's a strange one. Yeah. But. Another couple of quick headlines for me. In the past week or so, a couple of weeks away, Robert De Niro celebrated his 80th birthday. So happy birthday to him. Happy birthday, Robert. No really big fan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, I think it's probably all his best work is a little while ago, but he, he remains a, you know, a classic, you know, icon of the cinema. And I'm looking forward to see how he how he plays in Killers of the Flower Moon, which looks like him, you know, doing something new and interesting. And so when he inevitably has his ninth child at the age of 82. <laughs> yeah, he's still still going. Um Another little one that, that literally just came out this morning. Uh, there's apparently they've recorded a COVID spike over in California that's affecting the film industry and Lions <laughs> Lionsgate, which isn't not it's not one of the super big studios, but it's you know you, you, you'll recognise the logo from films you've seen. Um, they've reintroduced the mask mandate at their offices in LA, um, so that's a little bit concerning. Hopefully, it's the sort of thing that you can do with a bit of a um, 
you know, this is just a precaution, couple of weeks and drop back down again. Do you know what I mean? Because uh, most people are vaccinated now and everything. Yeah. But yeah. I'm, I'm fucking sick of it now. I think it's, I think we've all been vaccinated and I think we've just got to kind of get on with it a little bit because yeah. we can't just stop the world and all that kind of stuff and lose money because of people that right now shouldn't really be at risk. They should just be feeling unwell. Like, yeah, everybody. everybody's expectation is that the, all that shit that everyone went through for a couple of years was so that they'd never have to do that again. Um, yeah, I mean... And, and I, I think that's where people's mindset is going to be, you know? I mean, early in 2023, COVID is the least of its worries because it's an actual fucking fire hellhole. Yeah, it's an absolute disgrace. So. Yeah, I know. But uh, let, it's not my money. It's not my studio, so they can do what they want. It's just, I think it's stupid. Sure. Okay, well, any more news headlines from you, mate? Um... No, don't think so. Nothing's caught my eye. Very good. Um, after news, we always do new releases where you look at the calendar that's coming up. These will be predominantly uh, US, uh, sorry, UK rather than US release dates of films. So what's coming up between uh, the day this uh, this podcast is released, which is August twenty fifth, and the next uh, uh, the next podcast? So what's coming out uh, that month? Um, any any new re- any upcoming releases uh, caught your attention, mate? Uh, any upcoming what did I see that looked really good was it Killers of the Flower Moon that I thought that looks like it's going to be really I can't quite remember let me double check Killers Um, of the Flower Moon is October but that's on its way it's not not long while you look I'm going to just reel off a couple that I noted down August the 25th something's coming out called The Blackening Um, I I kind of only include this because I found it slightly amusing it's a horror comedy with an all black cast and the tagline is we can't all die first um I suspect that they had an idea for a horror movie with a black cast and that tagline before they had any ideas for a story, but it amused me uh, enough. I think they deserve to be read out at least. We'll see if they're any good. Um, September the 1st, Sound of Freedom, which is a movie with Jim Caviezel um, about a, a current or possibly retired FBI agent who uh, uh, takes on a, a child sex trafficking ring. Um, it's interesting that the... This has been called the QAnon movie because while it doesn't cite any QAnon conspiracies or anything like that, it doesn't suggest that Hillary Clinton's behind it or anything because Jim Caviezel's in it and it's you know about taking them on. A lot of QAnon-type supporters and far-right Americans have, have taken this and made it their flagship film, which the director is very pissed off about. Um, obviously, slightly mixed feelings because it's made quite a lot of money in America, um, but the, the director has been at pains to say he's not a QAnon supporter. So that's going to be a weird one where politics and art sort of mix a little bit. And on the same day, The Equalizer 3 comes out. Oh, who gives a shit? Yeah, I mean, look, I liked Equalizer 1. I quite liked Equalizer 2. Denzel kicking ass is always fun to watch, but I don't feel a strong urge to go out to the pictures to see that. I'll probably wait for it to be available on the smaller screen. Uh, did that give you enough time to, to see what you what you were looking for? No, it must be it must be next year. It's nothing coming up recent. All right, no, no worries. not coming out recently, sorry. So yeah, all right, fair enough. Um, September the fifteenth, A Haunting in Venice. It's a new Poirot film from Branagh. Um, I did like Murder on the Orient Express. I didn't like Death on the Nile. I thought it was distinctly average. Again, I'll probably wait for this on streaming. I'm not, you know, crying out for it. Uh, and on September the 22nd, Drive Away Dolls. Um, this is actually Ethan Cohen of the Coen Brothers. He's writing and directing without his brother. This is not a Coen Brothers film. This is just one of them making a film by himself. Um, 
it was interesting just for that. So it looks like a bit of a sort of an indie film with a, like a young female cast. See what it, see what it comes out. Um, frankly, it's been a little while since either of them made anything I've really loved. Okay. Um, anything else? Any any thoughts? Um, there's one that I've just had a look at there, and it's um, Bolden Shoes. No, tell me more. So it's got Timothy Spall playing. I think Mark Bolan from T-Rex. All right. You know the band? No. Yeah, no, He's yeah. not playing Mark Bolan. He's not, I don't think he's playing Mark Bolan. He would be too old. But he's playing someone called Jimmy. He's getting quite good reviews, like, initially. Um, um, got quite a good cast. Timothy Spall, Leanne Best. Yeah. Um, She's not been, she's been in a couple of things. But it's, uh, it's by the guy who did... A few episodes of Pennyworth. Oh yeah, that was the um the Alfred prequel or something, wasn't it? Yeah, um, he looks like he's done mostly TV stuff, but it's got a decent cast. Yeah. I didn't really like T Rex's music, but it's getting quite good reviews initially. So yeah, yeah, it's um there's sort of Maybe a little su- the, there's there's a little subgenre, isn't there? There was one about um about the Joshua Tree, not the E two album, but the place where like an old kind of uh, folk rock singer was buried it's sort of it's films where someone associated with a with a rock star does something or goes on a bit of a journey or a quest and it's all about it's all about i think it relates to fans kind of loving the music a little bit but yeah it's um love timothy spall so who knows that might be a little bit of a sleeper indie hit there um yeah but i think i think those are the new releases that that have caught my eye i must say it's very quiet i think i think barbie and oppenheimer aren't going to leave the box office anytime soon um there are a few sort of interesting counter programming things if you've already seen barbie and oppenheimer enough times and you want to watch something else you might want to try drive away dolls or the the mark boland film just for a bit of a change of pace it's not been a brilliant summer for blockbusters has it mate no it's not been great but there you go Where we get to after the news and your releases is our fiendishly complicated but hopefully increasingly popular penalty shootout film quiz. Uh, what what happens here is we have a, you all understand how a football penalty shootout uh, quiz goes. We have uh, qu- quiz questions for, on films asked in that format, one from, one from one of us, one from the other one. Best of five, one tiebreak question if it's not decided after five. Um, if there's no winner, uh, no one does any forfeit. Um uh, if we if there's no winner but we've done both done very badly we both do a forfeit but if there is a winner over the course of that shootout uh, quiz format one of us has to do a forfeit of watching a film that we're not going to like uh, that's nominated by the other player um, so far I'm doing quite badly on this I've lost twice James hasn't lost at all I recently had to watch a monkey's tail which I think is probably rightful revenge uh, I watched it again and James I can only apologize for making you go and see that twice at the cinema it's bloody terrible Oh. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm uh, I'm not doing very well on this at the moment. Although I think we've had some pretty keenly contested high quality quizzes that ended in draws. Um, we also have a just to make it slightly more complicated to give 
to to give you an advantage in the quiz, you have the, the chance to win a lifeline. And the lifeline is earned by blind ranking a list of five films, actors, or something else to do with film that the other one gives you. If you rank it well, you get a lifeline, or you rank it better than the other player, you get a lifeline. Otherwise, the other person has a lifeline that they can play during the quiz. Um, that sounds complicated, and it is, but it will make sense as we go through. So have you given any more thought to... Um, you, you sort of used up a... Uh, uh, a forfeit last time mate what, what's your thoughts on a forfeit for me this time if you win again uh, I think we'll just we'll go with Diana the musical okay no, it's been suggested give the people what they want okay well I've I've not watched it um, so that can be my forfeit uh, my forfeit for you I'm going to bring it back I'm, I'm not giving up on this The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou the Wes Anderson inverted oh. commas classic which I know you're going to hate if you have to watch it um, it's almost too cruel to make you watch Diana the Musical again. So your forfeit is The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. My forfeit will be uh, uh, Diana the Musical, which I imagine I'm not going to enjoy. So there, mate? Yep. Yep, thought I pressed the wrong button there. Okay. We will start with the blind ranking list. Do you want to ask your, Do you want to ask me or do you want me to ask you first? You ask me first. Okay, I want you to blind rank this list of five best picture Oscar winners, the best uh, best to worst. So which is the best would get number one, which is the worst would get number five, and uh, you have to go go with it, okay? Right. Number one, Platoon. Four. Okay, not a fan of Vietnam films. No, just not that one. Not that one, okay. Next, A Beautiful Mind. Three. Okay. Next, Spotlight. Two. Interesting. Next, Shakespeare in Love. Five. Okay. And finally, this Rocky. Be... <laughs> You've only got one left. It's one. Rocky's one. got two I number mean, one. I mean, I don't hate it. Yeah. I didn't put Shakespeare in Love like third banking on you know that or something like that <laughs> no Shakespeare Love was definitely deserves to be uh, yeah, in last I kept, place I kept five and one open and gambled yeah um, I, I think in retrospect you might have put Spotlight first out of those ahead of Rocky or yeah maybe yeah okay okay you're gonna give me a list of blind rank now right you ready yep rate these action films mm -hmm. from best to worst okay The Raid Okay. There is a risk here that if I put it one, there's something else that's even better. It's going to be very, very, very near the top of the list for me. I'm going to say, just to give myself some room for manoeuvre, I'm going to say two. I do think very, very highly of the raid, so I'm going to say two. Okay. Terminator 2. Oof, oof. Okay. You've made this very challenging. Um... Okay, maybe heretical for some people listening. I'm going to say three. Okay. It's another Arnie. Predator. Uh, four. Okay. You don't want to change any answers, no? I'm okay so far. Okay. Old boy. Oh, you see, I wouldn't have called that an action film, but it does have some of the best fight scenes of all time. Yep. Um, just on just on sheer rating it as a film, uh, I have to say that I'm, I'm 
given what I've done, I can't possibly put it below Predator. I'm going to have to say one. Old boy is one. You sure? I, I've got no choice. I know what's going to sure? happen now. I know what's going to happen now. Are you sure? I, look, I, I, I've made my bed. I'm going to lie in it. Okay. And number five, or your option for number five, is Die Hard. <laughs> See, it's not as bad as it could have been because I thought you were going to make your last one Mad Max Fury Road and I'd be kicking myself. See, um, no, Mad Max Fury Road, I didn't necessarily feel like it was much of an action-action film, if you get what I'm saying. It was mm-hmm. visually a stunning film and the sequences were good, but it wasn't like... I didn't watch it for the fighting. It was more of like a thrilling kind of chase mm-hmm. film. That's, yeah. That sounds weird because that might sound like action. But when I think of action, I think of let's watch Eco Waste kick fuck out of yeah. 600 drug dealers. Um, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, so look, Die Hard has to be five. And I have to say, I would. I, that's not how, how I would have ranked the list if, I, if I'd known. Um, so what did, how did your list go? I think I put Old Boy 1, uh, The Raid 2, Terminator 2, 3... Predator four and Die Hard fifth. I mean, it's not the worst. It's not. It's not the worst. But I think, I think you can probably defend your ranking better than mine, mate. So I think you have to have the lifeline. Right. Okay. Okay. Right. Penalty time. Okay. Um, you asked me first, so why don't I ask you first in the actual shootout? Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. So you have a lifeline. You can play any time. We're going to ask five questions. I'm asking you first. Okay. Right. Question one. Which of the following directors has not done a remake? James Cameron, Spike Lee, Paul Thomas Anderson. So James Cameron, Spike Lee, Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. Well, unless we're talking... Aliens isn't a remake, is it? No, Aliens is a sequel. I'm not classing. Right. I'm not counting that. Does Alita count? I mean, he was only on the like the writing. No, he he, he didn't he didn't direct it, so we're not going to. Oh, gonna it's directing, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Only films they've directed. He must have done something stupid. Did he not do the Abyss? He did direct the abyss. Is that a remake? Look, I said Aliens wasn't a remake because I just wanted to be very, very clear that we're not counting sequels as remakes. But I couldn't comment otherwise on any of the rest of his films. Okay. And unless you want to use your lifeline here, um, I don't know if I want to use it right away. Um, I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson's. I don't think he'll have done a remake, really, unless it's like really early on in his career and I just don't know about it. And then, who's the other one? Spike Lee. He must have done a remake or something at some point. Can't think. I genuinely can't think if Spike Lee's done a remake of... I mean, they've all done so much shite, like... Not shite, but they've just done so many... I mean, James Cameron has, and it's probably quite easy to pinpoint whether James Cameron has. It's just... Trying to identify which one, which of his films is the remake. Whereas Spike Lee must have directed, you know, dozens, dozens, hundreds of. He's very, he's very prolific, isn't he? Um, 
I'm going to go with... Paul Thomas and no, I'm going to go with James Cameron. Just commit to it. The correct answer is Paul Thomas Anderson. Fuck. So Paul Thomas Anderson has done no remakes. While his films might be reminiscent of you know the seventies and such like, every one of his films is is you know as as best as you can call an original story. Spike Lee did a remake of Old Boy. Oh dear. Which yeah, don't know why on earth he did that. And James Cameron's True Lies is a remake of a French action comedy yeah i was never getting that okay so that's that's one incorrect answer sorry if just bear with me i'm gonna double check i pressed the button and i just want to absolutely double check that we're still recording properly no worries yep sorry i'm being very paranoid but there you go all right Okay, after after your first question, you're still on zero, mate. Uh, it's your turn to ask me one. Okay. Which iconic movie franchise has been around for even longer than James Bond? Okay. So, to be a franchise, they have to still be making films, right? Can I just clarify yeah. that? That it's something that it's one they're still making films of. And it's been around longer than uh, uh, Bond. So, the first Bond film was made in 1962. Uh, I mean, even if you were going to go back to one of the early sort of TV adaptations, you're still only talking about the 50s. So we're talking about films that have been around longer than that, that they are still making films of. Um, what am I thinking? I mean, if you're going to count the fact that they recently did a uh, an Alexander Skarsgård version of Tarzan, Tarzan films have been around uh, since like the 30s, so it could be that. Um I guess if you're counting the Batman films, because they did some Batman film serials, if you count them as films, then I guess Batman has been around longer. Um, I'm looking at, I'm not counting the Batman ones because like you say, they're film serials. They were more kind of like TV movies. I mean, films that were like in the cinema and they've been making those films since before even James Bond. I'm not okay. saying it's the longest franchise. I'm just saying what franchise. Start, start yeah. It, they might not have done nearly as many films, but the first one was before doctor no and they're still making them yeah yeah um look, I, I bet I, look I'm, I'm struggling a bit here i'm going to go with the one that sprang to mind and i'm going to say tarzan uh it was godzilla oh the first godzilla film came out in 1954 Oof. yeah i don't suppose you can say the tarzan franchise is still going because they've made a couple of attempts to reboot so yeah godzilla is still a thing yeah yeah fair enough mate all right. I mean, the, the Japanese are making a Godzilla film like every two years, aren't they? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's right. Nil, nil, nil after one. Then okay. Next, next one for me to ask you. Question two: What was Spielberg's highest-grossing decade? So what I mean by this Ooh. is of of a completed decade. So we can't we obviously can't count the decade we're currently in because we're barely through it. Um, you know, barely into it. By global box office performance, yeah. Right. Um, adding up the films that he made in that decade, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s, which one of those decades did cumulatively make the most money? Uh, his The films he made in that decade make the most money at the box office. Okay. 
Now, this might be a tricky one because <clears throat> he might have not made many films in a certain decade, but they made a lot of money. Okay. So, what's his highest grossing film? It must be one of the Jurassic Parks, sure. Or is it, are we talking adjusted for inflation? Right, that's the other thing. Not adjusted for inflation. We're not doing any like, we're not saying, oh, oh we're not calculating in 70s dollars or, you know, or anything like that. So, it's the money that it made in the money of the time. Right. So, I was going to say, because Jaws, if you adjusted it, would probably be his highest grossing. But... Yeah. Uh, agreed. No, this is this is just unadjusted. The money that that it made in you know in in the the currency of the time. Well, then it's got to be the nineties because because Jurassic Park goes made a billion, but then he didn't do much else, did he? But then he did another Jurassic Park, so it'll probably be him at close to one and a half billion already. Saving Private Ryan will probably bring him up to around two billion. What else did he do in the 90s? Schindler's List. I don't know if that'll have made money. It won lots of Oscars, but I don't think it would have made money. Hook. That will have made a wee bit of money. I'm going to go with the 90s. The correct answer is the 80s, I'm afraid. Oh! Uh, then he it's, must have made about three and a half billion in the nine, in the 80s. That cannot it's, it's, be right. It, it's a close run thing because the 90s he did 5.8 billion. In the 80s he did 6 billion. Jesus Christ. But bear in mind, in the 80s, he had um, Ready for the Lost Ark, E.T., two more Indiana Jones films. Um, uh, the Color Purple did quite well. He, he, just, he just absolutely smashed it in the, uh, in, in, in the 80s. <sighs> okay, so again, still nil-nil. Uh, you've got a second question to ask me. Don't forget, going forward, you've got a lifeline for one of your last three questions. So, what is... The this is a hard it's hard to word this question. What film made over a billion dollars for the lowest budget? Like Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Yeah. And again, this is unadjusted, right? Yes, it's just it's it made yeah. it made a billion and that's yeah, when yeah, it made I, a I get billion. It. Yeah. yeah, I get it. So if you look at so the you've got things sneaked into the, the billion like uh let's see it's not it's not going to be titanic and it's not going to be um uh either of the avatar films because they both you know cost all cost loads of money um the avengers endgame and infinity war they made lots of money but they did cost lots of money you do have some of the marvel films that um i don't think black Pan panther would have cost all that much just trying to think. I don't think Iron Man actually made a billion. So you're looking at any if any of those Marvel films were done for slightly less budget, which ones didn't have quite as big a need for CGI, perhaps. I don't think Cap Captain Marvel cost all that much. Um, and then there's the things that are outside of that. I mean, see, Inception, Inception, did Inception make actually a billion or was it just under? The Dark Knight might have been... Yeah. Okay. Um, so I don't think there's anything that's cost less than like a hundred million dollars to make. It's made more than a billion at the box office. There is that kind of level of spend. So I'm trying. I'm trying to think of the list. Um, what's on there that didn't cost absolutely loads? Um, 
And that's all films that come out in the last kind of 10 years or so, really, the billion-dollar ones. Is there a billion-dollar one from before? Um, oh, I'm struggling here. Okay, I'm going to be a bit cheeky, and I'm going to suggest that... I think, no, did either of those... I'm going to say the original Jurassic Park is my best guess just because it might have sneaked over a billion and it would not have cost all that much money back then. So Jurassic Park, 1993. So the original Jurassic Park, let me just get the figure for you to make sure that it isn't that because that's not the answer I have here. So the original Jurassic Park cost $63 million to make and it made $1.046 billion. Nah might be quite close closer than i thought the film i have is joker oh interesting now, you know what i reckon joker Joker's might have budget, cost less than that you know uh, joker's think, budget i think is 62 um it's estimated to be about 55 million on imdb But if I'm going to pull rank, if you adjust it, if you adjust Jurassic Park for inflation, it's definitely higher than Joker one. Yeah, it's hard because it looks like the budget of Joker is between fifty-five and seventy million, which is like you know the speculated amount. If you take a midpoint for that, that's sixty-two and a half million. So I'll give I'll I'll give you Joker. I'll give you Joker. I like you say because especially given inflation, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that I got as close to the right answer as I did, though. Good stuff. Okay, so um, still nil-nil. I'm about to ask you a third question. Cool. Neither of us wants to watch a Wes Anderson film or Diana the Musical. You can obviously tell. <laughs> okay. My, my third question to you, James. Which of these directors has the fewest films in the IMDb Top 50? So based on a relatively recent look by me at the, the highest rated films by users on IMDb, the top 50, which of these directors has the fewest, the smallest number of their films showing up on that list? Okay. Right. Martin Scorsese, Christopher Nolan, David Fincher. So Martin Scorsese must have, I mean, you've got Goodfellas right off the bat and you must have, want to hold on is it just good fellas because do you not need to be around to get in the top 50 you've got to be around 8.6 surely what is the threshold for which i know top 258 when i've read it before it can go all the way down to like 8.2 but that's right down at the bottom so top i mean i know number one is that still shawshank redemption Did you want to use a lifeline here? Let me see if I can try and logic my way through. Without without giving you a lifeline, all right, I can tell you that the 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 number fiftieth rated film at the moment on on IMDb is rated eight point five. Right. And so I don't I, I don't can... I don't think I'm giving anything. That's not a lifeline. That's just you know right. since since you were pretty close to kind of knowing that. Okay. So now I'm thinking. I can only think Goodfellas has definitely got to be above 8.5. Um, 
trying to think of any other. What do we think the rating for The Departed is? Is that going to put it in just into the top 50? So I think two for Martin Scorsese. David Fincher must have Fight Club and Seven. That must be two. I don't think he's got any more. Huh. Well, by my calculation, David Fincher and Martin Scorsese both have two. And then Christopher Nolan must have fucking... He's got The Dark Knight for one. Inception for two. Interstellar must be up there. Because that's got a good rating on IMDb. Um, Oppen- Does Oppenheimer count? Will that count? Even though it's not got as many ratings as other ones. So that'll be at least... F- I think he's... Martin Scorsese's got probably five. Not Martin Scorsese. Christopher Nolan's got five. The other two, it must be a... It must be a draw. Uh, mate, I've just had another look at the IMDb, and I'm I'm going to have to give you the I'm going to have to give you a right answer for this because I thought that The Departed was outside the top fifty, and right. maybe it maybe it was, and maybe it's just suddenly bumped up recently. But I've just looked back in there, and Departed is in the top fifty. So you're right, Scorsese and Fincher have two each, <laughs> and no one has four. So you've accurately said how many each of those. So that's my right, fuck let me, up. Let me go. Let so, me go so, so, so you get you get a right answer because you've accurately stated exactly how many. Uh, each of those film directors so has got in the Nolan's top Nolan's got The Dark Knight, 1, Inception 2, Interstellar 3, Oppenheimer 4, and The Prestige is... So he's got 5. Number 43 mm-hmm. is Prestige. So he's got 5, and then... I think when uh, I counted this up, Oppenheimer hadn't got in there yet, but he still right. had the, but he still had the oh, most. Yeah. He had 4. But look, you've 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 actually you've you've ranked them. You've got it spot on, mate. Um, I, I have to give. You, I, I could have asked you how many do each of those three people have in the top fifty, and you'd have got that right. I honestly right. thought that Scorsese only had one, and maybe he Ooh. did when I was taking that that list because I did it a couple of weeks ago. I can I can only give you a right answer on that, mate. Well done. So that's Woo! one one nil to you. Right. Which legendary director's first movie? Stands as their highest rated on Rotten Tomatoes. So, the first film, they directed it, and it's their highest rated film. And they're a bit of a legend. So they're a, they're a legendary director, not someone who turned out to yeah. be shit later. They're very famous for this as well. Is it Orson Welles? Yes, it is. Okay, one each. Just trying to think because I know I bet Brian Singer's highest rated film is Usual Suspects, but no one would call him a legend. Okay, all right, that's one one after three. Okay, yep. Okay, question four Which of the following actors, and remember, you've still got a lifeline, mate, which of the following actors made their first credited acting appearance in a feature film? A. Michael B. Jordan, B. Chadwick Boseman, C. Tessa Thompson. Hold on, I'll ask the question again. They made their first credited performance. In which, a f- which, sorry, which of the following actors made the first credited acting appearance in a feature film? Which, which one of these was first? Sorry, I read that, read that out wrong. Ah. Uh, which one of these um um was which one of these actors was the first to make their their acting debut in a film? So not TV film. Michael B. Jordan, Chadwick Boseman, Tessa Thompson. Which one of those acted in a film? first where they're you know they're, they're, where they're you know they're not a, they're not a, they're not an extra at the back they're actually a character in the film right so they've got like a named character yeah now i have a feeling michael b jordan was quite young when he started but chadwick boseman is a good 
well was sorry was a good 11 years older than Michael B. Jordan and I imagine a few I don't know how old Tessa Thompson is actually so mm, this is a trick one because me Chadwick got into it late and oh this is a hard one Michael B. Jordan could have been didn't couldn't have, might have not mattered about Chadwick Boseman being a bit older because he could have been in a film you know 10 Tessa Thompson I've got no idea how old she is so it's it could be a write off from the start. Do you want to use your lifeline here? I'm thinking because I I have seen like interviews of Michael B. Jordan where they've shown clips of him being in like stuff when he was a kid, which makes me think if he's been he was probably in a TV show or two to begin with, and then like you say a couple of extras, and maybe he was in a film in like 2003. Tess Thompson, I don't actually know how old she is. Give me a clue. Okay. So Tessa Thompson is uh, slightly older than Michael B. Jordan. Okay. Uh, but not, but not much. And you are right that Michael B. Jordan was a child actor. Are we? And it's like a it's a feature length film. Yeah. Okay, so I think it's a trick question. I think it's Michael B. Jordan because he was a child actor and Chadwick Boseman. Not famously, but I think got into it a bit later than, you know, like I think he was like in his mid to late 20s by the time he'd actually got into films. Yeah. Is the correct answer. Yeah. Michael P. Jordan's, uh, so film, not TV, character has to have a name, uh, acting in a film. Michael P. Jordan's uh, debut was 2001 with The Replacements. Uh, Tessa Thompson, 2006 from A Stranger Calls. Uh, Chadwick Boseman was actually the last of those three to make his debut in a film, 2008 The Express. You're right, he was a later starter than the others comparatively. Yeah. So 2-1 to you after your fourth question, my fourth question coming up. Which two actors slash actresses have been nominated for the most Oscars without ever winning? Which two? Yep. Most nominations without winning. Now, the ones that get a real kind of uh, mention are Glenn Close gets mentioned a lot and Amy Adams gets mentioned a lot. And I know Glenn Close has got fucking loads. She must have like eight nominations and she's never let, won. Let me, clear this, let me clear this question up because it's, it's a bit of a jumble. So it's an actor and an actress. They've both been nominated a bunch of times and they're tied. Okay, my guess for the actress is going to be Glenn Close. I have to now pick an actor who's got a similar number of nominations to Glenn Close without winning. And I think Glenn Close has got something like eight. So what male actor has got that many nominations without actually winning? I'm I'm thinking possibly, God, who are we talking? There's the likes of, who's been around that long? And not one, but but I mean, and as you say, it, you you said it like it was a, a living person it was, has has as yet not one, but I, that could be a red herring. So no, I that? didn't mean to say it like that. They could be, they could have passed away. They, they could, could they could have, they could have passed away, or they could still. So ignore that. So who's who's had loads of nominations and never won? Um, male actors with loads of loads of nominations, but not one. See, I think I'm, I don't think someone like Harrison Ford's had many. Um, the names that are coming through my head are all people that have actually won. I'm, I'm, I've got to push that back to people who've been nominated and not won. Um, let's 
trying to think. I mean, I can think of some famous people that were nominated and didn't win. But who's who's got loads of nominations without winning from male actors? Maybe this is going to be blowing because I know Mark Wahlberg's got a few nominations and never won. Who else is quite strong in that area but hasn't won anything? I assume it's someone American. Oh, all right, names popped into my head. This is probably wrong and stupid, but Bradley Cooper. So Glenn Close, Bradley Cooper. That's Glenn Close and Peter O'Toole. Oh, fuck shit. Bollocks. Okay, all right. So you go into the lead with your final question. So I think with your final question, you're 2-1 up, yeah? But I don't have a lifeline. So, but if you get this right, it doesn't matter. I, there's not even worth asking me asking my answering okay. my final question. Okay, question five. What is the highest grossing film of all time that has a female lead? Now, to clarify here, this is unadjusted for inflation, all time worldwide box office. It doesn't have to be like a star vehicle where it's all about that actress, right? It can be an ensemble film where there's quite lots, quite a lot of famous stars in the film. Just the first build lead actor is female. So, for example, Barbie could be one of them. Barbie could, for example, be one of them. But also, like one of the one of the Marvel films, for example, with lots of characters in it. But if the if the first build name is female, and we're not talking about you know sometimes where they bill actors by who appears first or in alphabetical order, they're first build because they're one of the biggest names, you know, because they're because they're you know like a lead a lead part in the film. So it's Star either Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Done it. <laughs> you win. Fuck. And I have to watch Diner the Musical. So- <laughs> I, I would don't watch the whole thing because you'll be fucking visibly angry. Okay. But it's bad. Fuck. I, 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 pride, I pride myself five on five minutes of that. I pride myself on my um, uh, quiz ability. So it pains me somewhat that I'm 3 0 down in this. But I suppose I should be proud that my son is surpassing me in this area. It's my legacy. Um, Okay, so the questions please. are getting harder though. I can like the if you have to compare the questions from there to week one. Oh, yeah, it's like this is some serious, serious kind of competing here. Okay, okay. Um, all right. Well, congratulations, mate. You win the penalty shootout film quiz. So. After going through that emotional roller coaster, we now move towards uh, what films we watched this month, uh, especially any new films. So, James, what new films have you watched this month, if or, or, or any films? So, I suppose we'll leave it to the end, but we've both watched Oppenheimer. Yeah, let's discuss that together at the end. So, we'll discuss that together at the end. I've not watched Barbie, because I'm, I'm not particularly interested in it. Um, but, because I went on holiday, I actually downloaded a couple of... Uh, films onto my my kindle tablet thing i don't know what it's called but it's a it's a tablet it's a fake ipad um and i watched prey the the predator the predator prequel yeah the predator universe film what did you think um i thought it was okay but my main problem with it was that this predator was much stronger and better than the one in the 1984 film and they were shooting at it with Mm-hmm. M16s. 
mm-hmm. and this lassie manages to defeat it with, you know, basically an axe. Yeah, I mean, in yeah. 1719. So yeah, yeah, that was my 18th century Native American weaponry, which was proving to be kind of, uh, 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 you know, out outgunned by contemporary kind of, uh, you know, European uh, weapons, right? Yeah, that was my only problem there. But I liked the way they, with it being that kind of restricted environment for them, for the the protagonist, she obviously had to think outside the box trying to defeat mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, it had a couple of nods to the original. And I enjoyed it. It's a, it's a good film. It's not it's not too scary, which is good. They made it more about the action yeah. and uh, less about the horror, which I was like, because I hate scary films. Um and yeah, I thought it was a good watch. It passed. Uh, to be fair, I watched it when there was a lot of really bad turbulence on the way out. Um, if anyone's listening and thinking of flying with Freebird Airlines, don't imagine Ryanair, but worse. <laughs> um, so it was when it was getting really climactic with the with the fucking you know the final fight between um, the protagonist, her brother, and the predator. I mean, it's not a massive spoiler, but they end up fighting this predator, and you're like, yeah. oh, fuck. The plane was literally fucking up and down, up and down, up and down, up so, and down. So you're watching it in in four DX against your will. I would have rather have been in 1719 on the Great Plains fighting that predator than on, on, than on that plane. plane at that fucking hell. Um, but no, it was yeah, it was good. It passed a couple hours, and then what else did I watch? Watched X Men First Class. I'd seen that before, but I thought I'd start watching that again, and with the intention of watching Days of Future Past. But then I realised if I do that, I'll have to watch Apocalypse, and then I'll have to watch Dark Phoenix, and I couldn't really be asked with that because those two films are really, really bad. Yeah. Um, how, like how, how, does, how does first, how does First Class hold up? See, I, it's still really good, if, but and you notice more things because when I first saw it, I was about fifteen, and now I'm watching it again. I'm seeing more nods and. That cameo from Wolverine still the best cameo in any film ever. Yeah. Um, yeah, still really good. I really like it. I really like the character development and all that stuff. Um, and then on the way back, I watched the White Men Can't Jump remake. All right. Okay. Now, it get, I was surprised because I watched it without looking at any of the reviews. And then I saw the reviews and I got absolutely panned. Yeah, like it got absolutely destroyed by the, the even the even like the not the critics, just the normal, the normal audience. Yeah, um, critics hated it, um, and a lot of it was pinned on um, Jack Harlow, who's obviously a rapper, and saying he can't hit any of the, the comedic notes and all that stuff. But you yeah. know what? I thought it was okay. Really. See, I, I had that down as on a list of kind of remake hate watches to do at some point in the future. Have you seen the original, by the way? Yeah, I've seen the original. I mean, the, the original is very, very 90s. I mean, the, uh, there are a lot of films that were made in the 90s that don't have a massive, or didn't seem to me at the time to have a massive 90s vibe. Maybe if I watch them again, they will. But the, the original White Man Come Jump was a really, really 90s film, super 90s, and... Uh, it was I almost felt like it, it's not just that a remake, you know, that my general d- d- dis, you know, dislike of remakes. It's the idea that could lightning ever strike twice is so specific to that moment in time. But it, it's interesting that you didn't didn't mind it. I didn't hate it. That's the thing. I I thought this was okay. I thought Jack Harlow was okay. I think it was. I would struggle to see him try to do anything else. I think he played the sort of Woody Harrelson type very well. Um, mm. he wasn't he wasn't hilarious, but. He was okay. He wasn't. Mm-hmm. He wasn't. He didn't make me hate the film the way that you know you, Justin Bieber and CSI just sticks out like a sore thumb kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know that kind of 
but it was it was fine. If you want, if you're into your basketball and you like a kind of film, the only problem was that it was quite short, so yeah. they didn't really flesh out the story. But I didn't hate it. Um, oh, interesting. And I think the the actual problems I had with it wasn't with the the actor who was actually a rapper slash musician. It was the other actors that you know were who weren't very good at all. Um, there was a lot of stuff where it felt like it was trying too hard, and yeah, and I mean, the the original film's got a really really good strong cast of people that were like quite well known at the time as well. I mean, yeah. Even Rosie Perez was kind of making a name for herself by that point, and Woody Harrelson and uh, and Wesley Snipes were quite big stars when that film already when that film came out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, watch that and. I got, I would say, about 60% of the way through the clone Tyrone, and then I had to go back to work, and I've been working the past six days, so I haven't had a chance to finish it. Okay, but I'm I mean, enjoying you, what I've seen so far. Do you want to like reserve judgment on it until you finish it, then? Yeah, I, d- I don't want to pass judgment on it, but what I've seen so far, Jamie Foxx is absolutely brilliant. It's a very funny film. Oh, interesting. So well okay. written. Well, so let's see if they land the plane, right? Uh, no pun intended. Uh, with, the, with the last 40, 40%, you can tell us what you think next month, yeah? Yes. Very good. Cool. Uh, so that's your that's your film watching. Obviously, we're going to do Oppenheimer in a minute, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I watched a couple of things that aren't Oppenheimer. Why don't I go through them first, and we can kind of do Oppenheimer together, yeah. Yep. So uh, look, let's get this out of the way because it's going to be overshadowed by the other films I watched this month. I watched uh, Heart of Stone which is, it's on Netflix only. It's exclusive to Netflix. Um, uh, Whatchamacallit? Uh, streaming only. And it's Gal Gadot's uh, attempt to, or build very much as her attempt to do her own action spy franchise, like the female equivalent of something like uh, Mission Impossible. Yeah? Yeah. And, and first off, the idea of Gal Gadot as like a female kind of super spy, I'm 100% on board with. I think that's a really good idea. I think it's it suits her. I don't think she's ever going to win an Oscar as an actress, but she really does play well in action films. She's she's livened up two action franchises already, the, you know, being by far the best thing in the, in the DC universe, even when the films are shit. And she was good in a relatively limited role when she was in Fast and Furious. So well up for that. Um and the idea of a female super spy, again, I'm totally on board with it. It's like, why not? I mean, there's all this discussion about, well, let's make James Bond female. And we all said, well, why don't you just give, create a good spy character for a woman, right? Great idea. Much better thing to do. And this is, the first thing to say is it's it's quite far ahead of a lot of these other um, Netflix exclusive films that have been had. Do you remember Red Notice on Netflix? Vaguely, yes. Is that the? Is it Chris Hemsworth? No, that's that's no one. Uh, like Red Dawn. Yeah, and then there was Extraction that he did exclusively for for Netflix. Yeah, no, no, I know what you mean. It had Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds in it. Yeah, didn't catch it, but yeah. So I um, I have to say that I I must have watched Red Notice because it's on my list of you know things watched. Um, and when I looked at the pictures, I went, oh, yeah, I do vaguely remember that. I think there was a bit on a beach. But that went completely in one ear and out the other. That's actually got Gal Gadot and The Rock and Ryan Reynolds in it. Can't remember a bloody thing about that film. This is this is a good deal better than that, right? This is actually a not a bad film at all. This is a decent film in a, in a lot of ways, yeah? I think the challenge that you've got is that they've just brought out a Mission Impossible film and they've raised the bar so high, yeah, um, that, you know, it, it's... 
it's pretty hard for anything else to compete in that space. And I don't think it does anything else different enough. So you're looking at all the stunts and going, yeah, that's fine. I know that makes it sound really, really spoiled, right? Because there's a bit where she like free fucking dives onto an airship and stuff. There is some really cool stuff in it, but it's just not done with the same kind of pizzazz and intensity. It's not about saying, oh, Gal Gadot has to actually jump out of a plane at 40,000 feet. I don't give a shit about that. It's about how effectively it's filmed that make you think, wow, this is really exciting stuff. And, you know, the Mission Impossible films all had top directors in there. I if, I think if they wanted to really go for this, why didn't they sort, sort of say, look, Catherine Bigelow, it's been a few years since you've done a movie, whatever you're working on, come on, get the old fucking action stuff out and do Point Break for Gal Gadot, you know? But they've just got some relative journeyman director who's done okay, the film's okay, it's a good cast. Um, there's not anything really original enough about the story. It's the the... It's a shadowy kind of parallel spy organization that's embedded itself in MI6. The idea being that your conventional spy teams like the CIA and MI6 can't quite do it all themselves. So this team like hides in the background and helps them out when they can't, you know, and they don't know they're there. Without telling them they're there, help them out so that the world is protected. And they use this incredibly powerful supercomputer that tells you everything you need to know. And that that gimmick doesn't really work, right? Because that supercomputer becomes the, the plot, right? Someone wants to steal that supercomputer for themselves, so they attack, I think they're called the Charter, Gal Gadot's spy team. The problem is that it's not very good dramatically because this computer seems to know everything. It's like, oh, that's the person, go find her. It's like, well, if this computer knows so much, how come you get surprised and ambushed in the next scene? Do you know what I mean? It's like, it, it, it doesn't really work all that well. And it's got shades of... You know, I've not played Assassin's Creed, but I've watched you play it. And you know how, like, you've got that voice in your ear telling you everything that's going on? It's like, that works for Assassin's Creed because it's such a weird, unfamiliar environment to throw themselves into. But in this, you've got a computer in Gal Gadot's ear or a computer operator in Gal Gadot's ear going, do this, do that, they're around the, they're around the corner. And you just think, well, uh, bloody hell, you know everything. Of course she's going to win. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's also shades of wanted. Do you know what I mean? There's this all-knowing kind of thing telling people what to do next and it's like it wasn't new enough it wasn't different enough it's like it's not bad it's perfectly it's perfectly watchable on netflix it's one of the better netflix action films you know and it's fucking miles ahead of shit like the gray man and ghosted it's really quite good but it's not as good as something like the old guard like um that thing with charlie Theron, because that's got a, that's got a genuinely different story it's like oh, i've not seen that before that's quite good and this is just like look it's fine I wish it was better because I would genuinely like to see like a spot, another kind of cool action spy franchise, but it's Netflix. I don't think they put, en I don't think they put enough effort into making their films genuinely different and special and it deserves to be on screen. You know, normally you say, God, why, why don't you show your films at the cinema? And I'm really pleased that Apple are showing the, um, the Scorsese and, and Ridley Scott films later this year on, 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 on the big screen. This is like, it's fine. It's quite good. It's a perfectly decent couple of hours to watch on streaming, but it's nothing nothing that special. And I wish it was. I actually wish this was like a big event and you go, oh, fucking hell, I want to see the next one of these. Gal Gadot's found her franchise. But it's not quite that. It's fine. It's pretty good, but that's all. In fact, pretty good might be overdoing it. It's, it's quite good. It's okay. Um, and I also went to see Barbie. Okay. No, I didn't. How did you like it? I didn't do the Barbenheimer thing, like watch two films in the same day, because I thought I don't. I don't do memes, and, and and I'm glad I didn't, because when I went to see Oppenheimer, I don't think I'd have wanted to see any film straight after it. Um, 
you know, and who's got who's got six hours? Do you know what I mean? Or five? Yeah, six, once you've parked and driven home and everything, you're talking about six hours to watch both films. Um, I I quite I, I liked Barbie. I thought it was good. I think um, it's it's what they kind of promised it was going to be, which is to say they've got an, they've got a filmmaker who's genuinely different and intelligent to do something different and intelligent with the, with the film. Um, Greta Gerwig is an interesting film director with her own ideas and has not just done it's not it's not like some of these directors who've been like swallowed up by the Marvel franchise you know where they've gone well I'm an independent and different director but in order to get some brownie points with the studio I'll do whatever they want she's actually taken this and done a Greta Gerwig film with it so absolutely fair play to her for that plot summary is how um how they're being played with in our world sort of has somehow affected Barbie world and Barbie's had these strange thoughts which are now changing Barbie and things go a bit wrong so she has to go to our world to sort it out just to go and find the person that's kind of created this kind of rip between the Barbie world and our world and she can travel to the human world um uh, Ken tags along he feels like he's not had much to do apart from stand on the beach and wait for Barbie to look at her. So he goes along and they kind of, the two of them kind of are little fish out of water kind of characters bumping into finding out the real world's not what they thought it was. You know, Barb, Barbie's been told that she's fixed feminism. Do you know what I mean? She's fixed everything for women and it's all great. And it, and it, and, it, and and she hasn't. She finds out the world is not at all like that, much more complicated. And Ken, when he's there, finds out about the patriarchy. And he thinks patriarchy is brilliant because, you know, <laughs> Because he, you know, he gets to be in charge and lord it over everyone and ride horses, and basically this is kind of idea of like. Um, so he turns into this kind of massive kind of bro type, you know, uh, sort of over the top kind of patriarchy support. One of these American dickheads. He takes that back to Barbie world and says, "Why don't we have a patriarchy and turn it into Ken world?" And then Barbie has to go back to um, to Barbie world and sort it out. So you, they've created this kind of that that that. Those are the stakes. That's the challenge. And um, they have lots of different kinds of Barbie, which works quite well. They have lots of Kens. They have the Allen doll, which I've not heard of. It's in the same general neck of the woods as, for example, Truman Show, Lego Movie, Toy Story, because how you you know finding out that your toys you're playing with are alive and can talk back. Do you know what I mean? It's not a copy of any of these films, but it occupies similar territory. Stranger Than Fiction, if you've seen that, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Small Soldiers, Galaxy Quest, League of Gentlemen, Apocalypse, Last Action Hero. I mean, and, you know, I only mention all of these films because it's it's not copying any of those films. I think it's a classic trope, isn't it? The idea of the fictional and real worlds colliding and what happens when that happens. It's a, it's, you know, it's like saying it's it's like all the other heist film is like all the other heist films. You know what I mean? It's almost a genre now. Um, I thought it was very cleverly written. I thought it was very well made and acted. I'm completely on board with the message. America Ferrara plays a woman in the real world who's got teenage kids and, you know, is a bit tired and finding it hard to kind of be a woman in, a, in, in what we call a man's world these days. It's very well done. I think it's not man-hating like some of the usual suspects like Ben Shapiro and other cunts are claiming. Um it sends up the idea of Barbie being feminist. You've got Helen Mirren doing this voiceover that's saying once upon a time girls just had to stay at home in the kitchen, but thanks to Barbie, everything's fixed and, and you know and the world is, is brilliant and equal. Thank well done, Barbie. And that's obviously sarcastic because I think we made a lot of progress as a society, but there's still shit going on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um it gives the male characters a genuine motivation. I mean, if you were a Ken in Barbie world, you wouldn't like it. Do you know what I mean? Because they're just accessories. 
And obviously, a bit of that is, you know, it's it, it, it's a flip side to that. You know, there are a lot of movies where the women are just sidekicks and it shows that. But actually, it does actually give Ken a motivation. It gives the Ken dolls, like, um, they're not... I don't think any of the male characters, apart from a couple of, like, assholes you briefly see, like some construction workers that, you know, shout at Barbie from the scaffolding and one guy who sexually harasses her. Apart from that... None of the male characters in this story are bad guys. Do you know what I mean? And some of them are genuine allies in a bumbling and silly way. Will Ferrell plays the CEO of Mattel who wants to help Barbie get Barbie Will back. Do you know what I mean? And America Ferrara's got a husband who's a nice guy. So there's no there's no man-hating in this. And at the end, I don't want to spoil the plot, but once the story's done what it's done, the the end of it is about reconciliation. You know, the, the Kens don't go to jail. Do you know what I mean? Everyone tries to go get on better and be better friends. And and the idea at the end is you wouldn't want to be a patriarchy. You want to be a matriarchy. Why don't we try and meet in the middle? So I think it's very positive and good. I can't, I don't have a criticism of the film, okay? If I was going to really nitpick, I would say there is one aspect of the Barbie film that they, they left really unexplored that I really like the idea of. The idea that how you play with the toy affects that toy. There's a bit where Barbie starts having thoughts of death. And I thought that was quite clever because you change the Barbie by playing with the Barbie. So the, the way the, the way the person plays with the doll changes the doll. I think they could have done a, more with that than they did. But review the film you've seen, not the film you've liked to have seen. Do you know what I mean? Apart from that, I don't have a criticism. I think Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, who've written the film, did it very well. Greta Gerwig has directed it very well. I laughed out loud. There's a really funny line where, because the, the Barbie dolls get brainwashed when Ken brings the patriarchy back because they've got no defences against it. And there's this really funny bit where after snapping one of them out of it, one of the Barbie dolls goes, oh, it's really weird. I suddenly felt like I gave a shit about the Snyder Cut of Justice League. And they had some quite clever, funny lines. There's a bit where uh, Ken says, uh, after I found out the patriarchy didn't have anything to do with horses, I lost interest anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's, what I thought was is that in other circumstances, they could, Greta Gerwig could have done her version of a like a, a Ron Burgundy film. Do you know what I mean? So she's done some very intelligent, clever stuff with this. She just happens to have done it with a Barbie film, and I thought that's very good. Um, the, the the problem is the one she can't solve is I'm not engaged by Barbie. I, I think it's a flawed and limited setting in which to discuss feminism. It's like doing a feminist film about the Kardashians. And I get it. They they address that. They they take the piss out of the idea of Barbie as feminist. But I don't... I think the aesthetic, the setting, Barbie dolls, I'm just not very engaged by that. So I admired it more than I loved it. Do you know what I mean? And and I can't criticise the film. I think Greta Gerwig's done a great a great job and I think this was the opportunity the studio gave her, right? She said, yeah, I can do something with Barbie. I played with Barbie dolls when I was a kid because she's a screenwriter or a, a, a filmmaker. So playing with dolls was her way of creating stories. The, the, the Barbie dolls were her cast of characters. So I get why she went, oh, I can do something with this. She's done absolutely the right thing. She's made a ton of money and made a very clever, she's made a Greta Gerwig film. Absolutely fair play to her. And I did enjoy it, and I thought it was good, and I think anyone who does watch it will quite enjoy it. I just think, look at it this way, right? If, you, if you're if you not into superhero films at all, and Batman leaves you completely cold, there's going to be a bit of a ceiling on how much you love The Dark Knight, right? Do you know what I mean? You can admire the filmmaking, you can admire what they've done with it, but at the end of the day, it's still Batman, and you don't like Batman. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's that. I reckon if you played with Barbie dolls as a, as a kid... I guess predominantly as a girl, but anyone might have played with Barbie dolls, and you like that aesthetic, you like that bubblegum pink stuff, you you would love it. It left me cold, but 
the reason I thought of the Dark Knight Rise is I think possibly because it's made so much money and, and she's done very well with it. This might do for Greta Gerwig's career what the Dark Knight did for Nolan's. In that she's done, she's found a property that the studio was willing to make a movie about and she's found a way to do her movie with it and impressed people and made a lot of money. And now, she, now I think she'll have an opportunity to do something else the way Nolan got to do Inception after he did The Dark Knight. And I think I'll like the next thing Greta Gerwig does if it's not got Barbie in it. I don't, look, I don't mind Barbie. I didn't hate Barbie, but it's just, it's not my thing. So as much as I enjoyed what she did with it, the fact that it's Barbie and Ken dolls was just a bit of a drag for me. But Greta Gerwig has proven herself to be a really interesting director. And how good would it be, right, if more directors than just Nolan and maybe, I don't know, uh, you know, really Scott Spielberg, it doesn't matter, uh, get another director up to that level where they get to use a lot of the studio's money to make their kind of movie. I'd love to see more of that. You know, in the same way that I don't like all of the 1970s new Hollywood filmmakers, but the fact that there was a lot of them making those kind of films created a world in which the films I did like existed. So I might like the next Greta Gerwig film, but even though I don't find better that than another fucking Haunted Mansion film, you know? Great to see Greta Gerwig getting the studio's money and making something that's got genuine thoughts and ideas in its head and is an interesting and well-made film. So I'm generally on board, just Barbie's not quite my thing. Do you know what I mean? But fair play, they, they've done a really nice job and, you know, I, I will watch the next thing Greta Gerwig directs without question because I thought she did a really nice job. Okay, I mean, my, my partner went to see it and she absolutely loved it, but I'll probably just wait for it to come out on streaming or whatever. My, 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 my guess is you'll like what they've done with it, but if you're, if, you're, if you're so turned off by the idea of watching a film that's got nothing but Barbie and Ken in it, it's, it's, it's going to drag on you a little bit, do you know what I mean? However, however smartly they've done it. That, that's my take. So that leaves Oppenheimer, the, uh, the piece de resistance. And I think that's where we're going to kind of take, you know, our, our, our reviews. You watched it, I watched it. We didn't watch it together. Um, did you watch it alone or did you take, did you go with the missus? I went with uh, the message, yeah, we went to see it at uh, a nice Odeon in Glasgow. Now, did you see it in an IMAX screening or just a normal? Uh, no, it was just a normal screen, but it was a nice big screen. Yeah, I went to see it in an IMAX. I think one thing you said to me afterwards, we, we haven't discussed this a lot because we sometimes try and save it for the pod, don't we? But you did say you didn't think it needed to be on an IMAX. Yeah, like I know that... Christopher Nolan likes to film on IMAX because he feels like it just looks better. And I will agree that all of his films always look very crisp and very clear. I don't know how much of that is down to IMAX or just the quality of the cinematography and the shots that Nolan picks and all that things. But what I will say is that his films always look very crisp. They never look, you know, unpolished, if that's the correct word. Um, but my, my main point was that if you want to film on IMAX, it's because you want to have it on a big screen for the massive sequences. Yeah, and, and there, there weren't many of those in this film, right? There's Yeah, there's like two or three. There's obviously the bomb going off, because everyone, that's not a spoiler. And then there's a sequence at the end of the film that's like a lot of wide shots and a lot of visuals going on. And then um, that same kind of visual is kind of referenced earlier on in the film, but it's only like a snippet. But there's only two, I suppose, big visual sequences. And other than that, it's very much an intimate 
it's, it's a drama, basically. It's a story film. There's not a lot that lends itself to... It's not like Inception, where the entire film is just a visual mindfuck, and the same with Interstellar or yeah. The Dark Knight, where it's got lots of action and practical effects, that all that going on. It really is just an intimate... And that's not. this isn't a criticism. I'm just I'm reflecting on the whole Mission Impossible getting annoyed at uh, the IMAX for not showing more Mission Impossible. I know for a fact I'd rather pay to watch Mission Impossible on the IMAX because of obviously you know that there's going to be a thousand different sequences and stunts yeah. in there as opposed to Oppenheimer which I could easily have just watched on my TV that's not that's not a criticism I've got I've got a relatively big TV compared to the like compared to cinema screens it's nothing it's a 65 inch TV yeah but I would have happily have watched Oppenheimer for the first time on that as opposed to yeah, yeah, that's interesting. To go and see it on an IMAX, and that's the thing. You, you, you didn't see it on an IMAX, um, and I did, so I can't comment on because because if I went to see it on a normal screening now, I might think, oh, it's lost absolutely nothing. You're quite right. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. I, I don't know unless I do. And and similarly, you um, you saw it on quite a big screen, but you didn't quite see it on IMAX. I mean, I loved it on IMAX, and I think on the whole, I I think yeah, you're right. There are only a couple of sequences that absolutely need IMAX. I did like. Because it's on IMAX, you get these close-ups that they do of Killian Murphy and a lot of the other characters. You see them magnified hugely on screen, and their 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 achievements are magnified, and their flaws are magnified. And a, just a twitch of an eye looked really huge on screen. It reminded me a little bit of John Borman's Excalibur, which oddly enough is probably going to get mentioned in the features uh, se- session because we're doing something about John Borman, where the Actually, in Excalibur, you don't have many giant battle scenes with huge armies taking each other on. You have a little bit, you know, because it's the King Arthur myth. A lot of it is like one-on-one battles between knights. Do you know what I mean? But because it's on the big screen, these characters look like fucking giants. Do you know what I mean? And Oppenheimer's, you know, personal and professional, his impact on the war, the impact of everything on his life, his relationships with people, was all writ large on this enormous screen. So I enjoyed seeing it on a massive screen. But, you know, when I eventually inevitably buy the Blu-ray of this and watch it at home, you you might be right. You might be right. I'll watch it and go, it's lost nothing in the um, in the small screen. And and some films like that. I mean, I watched Top Gun Maverick recently and I watched that on either an IMAX or a Cineworld super screen. And I watched it at home. Really enjoyed it. Terrific film and everything. But it makes a difference. The, the bit it, it, it some, some of the things had much more effect on the big screen than it, than it did at home. So we'll find out. That's a bit of a digression, but I mean, on the whole, what did you think of Oppenheimer? Did did you like it? Did you think it was? Yeah. So just to touch on your point on the big screen and everything being amplified, I still saw it on a cinema screen, and it, you know, it was good to see it. But I genuinely don't think you would miss anything from it being on a small screen. But the mm-hmm. actual quality of the film, yeah, it's brilliant. It's a very very good film. It's Nolan back to his best after nine years of nothing but shite. Um, he's. He's done what I think he was trying to do with Dunkirk and tell a kind of historical story, but he's picked a much better setting for it. I th- feel like Dunkirk was just a bit of a mess. Yeah, he's gone. He's picked. He's he's managed to kind of capture the scale of one of the most important things to ever happen in human history. He's captured it very well. He's cast it very well. Um, he's fleshed out a story. He's given it a very you know substantial runtime. And he, he, I mean, like one of the comments said, it could have been a series because there was that much that they still had to leave out. But mm. yeah, I really liked the way they went with it because I think people were just expecting it to be a kind of like race against the time and maybe maybe expecting to see a little bit more of mm-hmm. the Nazi side of things, but it was very much just about Oppenheimer. But they ev- take ev- it ev- everything, everything pretty much is from his point of view, isn't it? 
Yeah, but I, I know, I know, it... I know. You have that whole bit with like you know Robert Downey Jr.'s character and and looking back at Oppenheimer in the aftermath. That almost you're kind of with Nolan, you always get these kind of diff, very different, funny angles to to show you the film. But it's almost like it's either seeing entirely through Oppenheimer's eyes or it's flashing back to Oppenheimer through um, Robert Downey Jr.'s eyes, but you're still all on Oppenheimer. Do you know what I mean? So it's really, really tightly focused on him. Do you know what I mean? It is really, you know, really so much about what what he saw and felt, you know? Yeah. Um, but the the way they go with the story is that it, I think people just think of Oppenheimer as this scientist who was a brilliant, you know, physicist who was an absolute genius, but it actually goes into his personal life and how mm-hmm. despite him being an absolute American hero, he um he lost pretty much everything because he was accused of being a communist. And yeah. it goes down a very McCarthyist route. And I thought it was really interesting and it I love my history and I had no idea about any of that. So I found it really uh, very eye opening and just and, and and he was a really complex character, wasn't he? Because we, I, I, I knew going in that part of this story was going to be how Oppenheimer felt about what he'd done. Do you know what I mean? So he was punished by other people after the war for communism and stuff. But you get the feeling that he punished himself as well because he really, you know, he knew he had to do it. But then afterwards, he, you know, the idea that he was responsible for all that death and destruction weighed heavy on him, didn't it? And he did a very good job of expressing that. Well, that to be honest, that is my only criticism of the film. Um, my missus disagrees, but I felt like it didn't do enough of that. Um, I felt like it didn't show the true horror of the atomic bomb. So, I've I watched um, a video on YouTube. It's um, this guy who does just kind of like historical biographies and I think he calls them warographies, and he does like mm-hmm. things about the war and he kind of talks about that. I think is. Uh, channel name is water graphics check it out because it's got yeah. loads of good stuff and information and the atomic bomb killed like thirty thousand people instantly and and then a load more people in in the in the aftermath right aftermath of radiation but thirty thousand people were vaporized on the spot yeah and it doesn't capture it doesn't remotely capture the horror of any of that there's a slight i'm not going to spoil it there's a slight shot where he's having a panic attack and he's visualizing but it doesn't go into great depth. And my missus said, yeah, but that makes it really, like, gory. And I went, okay, maybe you don't explicitly show the gore of people being vaporised like they've been vaporised by Dr. Manhattan or it's that scene from, is it Terminator 2? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not I'm not asking for that, but it felt like it didn't... To convey the shock and horror, because I showed... I sent you that video, didn't I? Of, or did I reference it to you, the... Um, no, you you mentioned Oppenheimer. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a famous TV interview of Oppenheimer where he is sat there and he's an absolute shell of a human. He has no soul, and he talks about I am I have become death, the the destroyer of worlds, or I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. It's a mm-hmm. old Sanskrit text. Um, and he's he's got no soul. He's got no inflections. He's got no kind of emotion in his voice. He's just there. There's nothing. He's got the thousand yard stare on. He's mm-hmm. just that sat there smoking a cigarette, and there's there's nothing there. And I felt like they did a really good job of showing that Oppenheimer that was motivated to at, at any cost to defeat the Nazis. Get the, he wanted to defeat them and stop the war and end the war and bring everyone home. My problem was is that I think Killian Murphy does a good job of showing the shell shock to some degree but 
I think it gets a little bit caught up in the whole inquiry into the McCarthyist stuff. Basically, it gets it gets caught into that, and I found that very interesting. But I do feel like there was a l- just a little bit more to show how distraught, even if they did like a carbon copy of that interview, and Killian Murphy is an absolute shell one because Killian Murphy still has that kind of emotion or you're still conveying that emotion of mm. when he's trying to kind of fight his case of not being a communist and saying like look at all these things i did like i'm not a communist yes i knew these people that were communists but i never you know i never had any you know i didn't necessarily agree with them i didn't do these things that they wanted me to do i was i just knew these people from from my work and i get that they're trying to show that and try and show how horrible that the, the mccarthyist trials the witch hunts basically were but i really feel like they missed a trick in showing how oppenheimer went from this really motivated bright genius scientist to literally just literally just a a heart lungs and skin that's basically what he became after the war Mm. because he was so horrified at what he'd done and he'd been so caught up in defeating the nazis that he didn't necessarily think about the consequences and repercussions of what he did and we're still living with those repercussions now you know we're still scared of the nuclear bomb we're still scared of what north korea or what russia might do and it doesn't convey that enough for me i feel like they could have they could have shown that and maybe they could have shown that more by showing what maybe showing maybe the plane flying over hiroshima or like the and then maybe not showing the people being destroyed and blown up but the you know the the way that the aftermath of it like an absolutely yeah, yeah. leveled city but I've, i just it, it was missing something for me and i feel like nolan really struggles to capture that kind of stuff i don't think nolan is a very good director at capturing emotion when i think of all of his films i can only think of matthew mcconaughey's crying sequence in interstellar and other than that i don't really get emotive directing from him and it's something yeah. he's gonna have to learn to do better because he really can't do it and the only reason that that interstellar scene works is because matthew mcconaughey was at his absolute peak yeah, I mean, uh, the first thing to say is we've both kind of, a little bit of the offline discussion of this is that I think what we're doing now is we're discussing the choices that a director has made in a film that is on a level pretty much nothing else that's come out this year has got close to, right? And it's it's almost refreshing to have the dis- discussion about saying, well, now we've got a film that's really worth talking about and really worth digging into. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it's definitely you're right it's definitely a conscious choice on Oppenheimer's part isn't it to not show it that way he's trying to show I think because Oppenheimer didn't see the Hiroshima bomb he only saw the Trinity test bomb he's obviously made a conscious choice to say what we're going to see is we're going to see what Oppenheimer saw and we're going to see how Oppenheimer felt about that for the rest of his life but we're not going to see Apart from, like you say, that scene where there's a certain amount of visualization, there's also a scene where he visualizes some sort of future apocalypse where missiles just rain down on the world, right? But apart from that, you're right. He doesn't. We the film does not show the true horror of of, of the war. I mean, I would disagree slightly about the the emotional sort of impact of this because I felt like going back to what you said about Dunkirk. I think you're right. He succeeded where Dunkirk hasn't for for, for a couple of reasons. Um, but I, I, I thought that the timeline that he has is that the emotional intensity is there because at all times you're not just you're not just watching the bit where Oppenheimer's like a young scientist learning his trade. You're not just watching the bit where they build the bomb and you're not just watching the bit where he's being interrogated afterwards. At all times, you're in Oppenheimer's head feeling all at once this this kind of maelstrom of emotions that he's feeling as a result of what he's done for example again without giving away too much of the plot although everything is on the historical record the uh there's this 
cacophony of sound, this smash, 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 smash of sound that suddenly hits him in the head at numerous times. The, the film jumps around in time, but at numerous times all over the place. You see in Oppenheimer's head, there's this smashing, bashing kind of sound that kind of jumps in. It's almost like a jump scare. And you find out after the Trinity test that that's the sound of people stamping their feet in, in, like, in the victory rally where he goes and makes a speech to kind of succeed to people. And I actually felt, because again, this is what this is one one area where I think Nolan succeeded brilliantly. So one of the things I thought was missing from Dunkirk was the scale, yeah. But the other thing I thought that was missing from Dunkirk, which he's got here, is intensity. Do you know what I mean? Because the idea, you know, it's not just in the way people act. You know, the way that Matt Damon kind of grabs somebody by the scruff of the neck and says, "This is the most important thing that's ever fucking happened." Do you know what I mean? Showing people you've really got to do this. It felt like that. It felt like it was life and death. It felt like in 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 the room when he's having his life picked apart in that hearing and when they're about to take away his 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 clearance uh, and you can see they're all just kind of ripping him off. You've got Jonathan, uh, not Jonathan Johansson, he's a, he's a fucking footballer, Ludwig Göransson's music kind of uh, basically grabbing you by the fucking balls. It's kind of, I felt that emotion inten- emotional intensity was everywhere. Do you know what I mean? And and rather than, rather than focus it on, and here is what it looked like when Hiroshima was destroyed, Oppenheimer didn't get to see that firsthand, but he was haunted by it for the rest of his life. I actually felt from the way he did it that I got that from the way he did the film, but it is a conscious choice. And I think you're right. Some people might have wanted to physically show more. The nearest they get to it, apart from that bit where he visualizes what might happen physically to someone in a in a nuclear explosion, is there's a, um, there's a debate about the rights and wrongs of, of nuclear war. And you get to see people watching a film or, or a slideshow that's clearly showing the after effects of Hiroshima and people kind of shrink, shrinking and looking away from the screen. But Nolan's obviously made a conscious choice not to show you that. But I felt that the way he kind of, all the timelines were happening at the same time in, in Oppenheimer's head. And I felt that the emotional intensity of that was there, just shown in a different way. Do you know what I mean? But you're right, it's a conscious choice. And I think parts of that conscious choice didn't work as well for you, did they? No, but I think, I get what you're saying with the, the kind of the jump scares and the kind of thrashing and the crashing and stuff, I, and I thought that was good. And I thought I'm not saying that Killian Murphy doesn't give a good performance at the kind of him coming to terms with what he's done, but it just doesn't fully capture the scale of it all because the what what we're forgetting is that the nuclear the two nuclear bombs killed over two hundred thousand people in the end, mm-hmm. and that Oppenheimer is that that blood is on his hands. Mm-hmm. Now I get that the the models of it is to save the lives of millions and millions and to end mm-hmm. the war quickly. I, the, the, we're not going to get into that, but it ripped the man apart, and there was a real opportunity for them to kind of show that that kind of TV interview, which shows the kind of f- coming like the kind of coming into the full circle thing. Yeah. It was kind of rounded it off nicely, and I feel like I don't know why they missed that, and they focus a lot on the trial um, of what's his name, Louis Strauss. Is that his name, Louis Strauss? Yeah. Um. Or Strauss, I think you pronounce Strauss. it differently. Robert Downey Jr.'s character, the Admiral. Robert Downey, yeah, they, yeah. And I feel like all you had to do was give a couple minutes, even end the film on that kind of final hymn of I have become death. And I feel like that's how I would have ended it. Now, that, this isn't me slagging off the entire film. It was obviously a big kind of rant and criticism that I went on it there because it, it, and it did piss me off slightly that they didn't do Oppenheimer's full mindset on it. That just pissed me off a little bit. He had a lot of time for Gene Tatlock, but he didn't have a lot of time to show Oppenheimer being ripped apart. That that was just one of my criticisms of it. But all in all, it's an absolutely masterful film. Other than that, it's 
it shows an American hero being ripped apart and picked apart by his peers. Yeah, it's it, it's just about the it's it's about the way Cho see Nolan makes these choices about how he tells the story, doesn't he? Do you know what I mean? And that's one of them, isn't it? That was a conscious choice that he made because he wanted to just kind of I think what it was was that he's kind of if you look at the, the two main female characters in it, um, Gene Tatlock and and, and his his second wife played by Emily Blunt, um it's the and, and Oppenheimer himself is that you um it's almost like part of it is while you see the intensity and how this felt for Nolan it's almost like he's saying there's always a part of a person that you can never truly understand do you know what I mean and I think there's an element of Oppenheimer where, where you see his his struggle with what he did but also then a lot of the film is like Strauss not understanding what Oppenheimer was about at all. Do you know what I mean? There's like that still waters run deep inside these people. I'm not sure if I'm putting this very well, but I think there's there's almost an element of Nolan is kind of say, it's kind of saying what you see of the nuclear bomb is all that Oppenheimer got to see of it. And what you see of Oppenheimer gives you an idea of the how fucked up he was. But from an angle of looking at someone and like almost, I mean, I don't think it's an accident that part of your understanding of Oppenheimer is gained fr- through the eyes of a character who didn't fucking understand him at all. Do you know what I mean? There's the idea that you... Um, I think there's an element of Oppenheimer is not fully understood because people that complex and distant and difficult are never fully understood. And I think that's a, I think that's a very personal reaction from Nolan. It's almost like saying there's almost like this glass, um, this invisible barrier between Oppenheimer and other people. And I think there's, a, there's an element of that in the way Nolan's told the story. Um I think look, I think there are there are people who love Nolan and they will find be sort of a little bit nonplussed by the way he he does some of the things that he does, and I think that's probably the the way he's the most similar to Kubrick. Do you know what I mean? Kubrick's film about nuclear war was a comedy. Do you know what I mean? It's like he's just one of those people who comes at things from a slightly odd angle. You know? Yeah, but I think the problem was is that it felt like he'd. Well, my problem with it was that he was going with that right angle. And then just decided to leave it out. I think I think he he must have thought that it he 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 must have thought that it would be overdoing it to do it that way, and he wanted to express it in a different way, rightly or wrongly. I mean, for me, I just think it's interesting to discuss the choices that a director's made in a very interesting film. Do you know what I mean? Because you're right, he could have done it the way you described, and he chose not to. He chose to try and express yeah, that I mean, a different way. He, I mean, he should have. It wouldn't have taken long, and for me personally, I just I felt like that's what the film's crying out for. Just that 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 that, that, that bit where he's really broken in the interview. Because it, and Killer Murphy does a great job of showing the. Uh, there's a. It's great. It, it, that's the. I think that's the best thing about this mm-hmm. is that the motivation that Oppenheimer has, and then it just completely changes on mm-hmm. like on like a, on like a penny, doesn't it? It's mm-hmm. almost like on an edge. Yeah. And then he's he's be, he's standing in that kind of cl- like classroom or whatever it is, and they're all applauding mm-hmm. him, and he's just not able to concentrate because he's realizing what he's done, and that switch is there. And Kelly Murphy does do an absolutely sh- like stupendous job of then kind of descending into yeah. that kind of quieter man and not as motivated and like a oh what's the point kind of guy. But it just they needed to keep it going. Literally a thirty second scene of him sat in that TV studio and it would have been perfect. The film would have been absolutely perfect for me. Mm-hmm. It would have been a 10 out of 10 instead of a 9 out of 10 for me. That's very interesting. And I mean, I, I love that that scene, the bit where he's giving the rally speech because you can see, again, Killian Murphy's performance is amazing. I'd be 
staggered if anyone else wins Best Actor this year. It, I guess it depends how Joaquin Phoenix plays Napoleon, but even then. Um, Come on, they've got just to be nice, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the, the, the beauty of that scene is that everyone's stamping on their feet and cheering, understandably, right? Because what they've done has won the war and saved millions of lives. And it, 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 the film has also gone into the qualms that people had about doing it very, very well as well. But in that moment, you can see the horror on Killian Murphy's face. Whereas at the same time, because everyone's shouting and cheering and he's their leader and they're looking to him to say something, the words that come out of his mouth are, yeah, isn't it great? I bet the Japs didn't like being bombed. If only we could have done that to the Germans as well. And it's really rabble-rousing. But you can see in his eyes, he's going, fuck. Do you know what I mean? And it's that moment where for the rest of his life, he'll remember that he said that and he didn't like the, the person he was, you know. And, and that kind of horror inside himself doesn't come out in the way he speaks. I thought it was absolutely brilliantly done by everyone. I mean, f for you, right? I mean, it's less for me because Dunkirk, I didn't like, and then Tenet, I did. But that previous to this, it was two films in a row of, of novels that you didn't like. It would have been pretty bad if you hadn't liked this one as well, right? Yeah, and I mean... It, this, I think it, he, kind of, he kind of needed this to kind of win you back a little bit, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, when he did Interstellar, there was things I didn't like about Interstellar. I hated the whole... Love is the only thing that transcends the universe. Pish. Like that, that was rubbish. And there was things that I didn't like about The Dark Knight Rises. The Inception's his last perfect film. Like, mm -hmm. Let's be clear on that. There was no, I didn't have any problems with Inception. I thought it was a masterpiece. The same with The Dark Knight and um, The Prestige. Batman Begins. You know what I mean? Like His other films since then, since Interstellar. Like I loved Interstellar, but it had its problems. Dunkirk was nothing but a hot mess of shit. And Tenet was another one of the just... Why Why did Christopher decide to do these things for that film? Why did he decide to do that film in general? But this film, he felt like he was a bit more measured. What I, what I will say is, is that Christopher Nolan really doesn't know how to deal with sound. Or recently, he's just decided to make films impossible to hear. Now, I don't know if this just was the cinema that I was in, but do you know the scene where it's quite early on and uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character is speaking to that like senator aide person? Mm-hmm. Um, Alden Ehrenreich and they're walking in the corridor and there's loads of background noise now um, I don't know if this was just my cinema or you just didn't notice it but I couldn't hear what they were saying because of the background noise of the, the hubbub of everyone behind them and it's like Christopher Nolan is deliberately trying to make sound in movies like sound in real life and that is a pain in the fucking bollocks I work in an environment where there is sound in the background all the time and trying to hear people in public is a pain in the balls and it's even more annoying when a director has chosen to put that in his film. And it was—I mean, it was much, much worse than Tenet. It was like—it was only a few instances in the in Oppenheimer. I noticed that the sound in the background was just a little too high. But T Tenet was obviously awful. For I, it, I, know, I, like, I got, I've got to say, to Aaron, Aaron Taylor Johnson going to say, <laughs> and you're like, yeah, right, no worries, mate. I'll just try and fucking decipher that in Windings font on Microsoft Word what you've just tried to fucking say to me there. Tenet was bad for it, but Oppenheimer—it just feels like. He's just doing things that I don't know if he's just doing it to piss me off. See, I know, I know, Tenet was was definitely challenging sound on purpose. I, 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 I must say, right? I think it that could possibly be any of your cinema because I don't remember any any moments in my in my film where anyone anyone drowned each other out. I, I thought the sound was absolutely masterful in this film, um, and I, I, I maybe I'll have to watch it again and kind of try and look out for that. But I genuinely didn't have any moments in my screening where the, where the sound was overwhelmed. 
Right. So I, I, I didn't want to fully level the criticism because I wanted to ask you about it first. Yeah, I would, I would listen like... out for it. Look, he, look, he is he is challenging his audience, and he does have this thing about sound. But I, I but thought the sound, I, I thought, I thought the sound was was perfect in this. I thought the sound was absolutely immense because what 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 I got from the sound was stuff like there'd be these sudden kind of like that sudden like the 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 stamping feet coming back to haunt him. At other moments, I, I thought the way he did the sound was brilliant in this, and I don't I don't remember any moments where dialogue got fucked up because of it. I thought again, I thought he got the balance of everything pretty, pretty, pretty close to right in this film. So there's a couple of things that I say there. So I'm not talking about like the, like the kind of stamping and stuff like that because that stuff. No, I'm, yeah, good, I, I know I know what you mean about right, like the so, background noise. But yeah, it was like they were just they were just stood in the kind of I don't know what that building's called the uh, the city hall. Let's mm. call it that. And I'm trying to focus on the conversation between Robert Downey Jr. and Alden Ehrenreich and whoever, and the people in the background, which are obviously that, like, you know, extras are actually not meant to make any noise. Mm. It gets added in early and it gets put to a certain level where it's not too distracting and you can still hear the main character speaking. It was it was stuff like that. And I, I didn't notice it too many times, but what I want to dissect is, is that you say Christopher Nolan likes to challenge his audience. What, by making his films unintelligible? I think we need to stop letting him get away with this stuff because he's made some good films. No, no, I, mean? I, I know what I mean. Look, I think for me, the fact is I love Tenet and I, I having watched it, you know, multiple times, I've, I, I, I'm actually happy with the way the sound is and I, but, but I know that that's a choice that's going to piss people off. So I'd never try and talk anyone out of being pissed off by the sound in Tenet. In this, I've got a genuine feeling that it was the levels in that cinema because I don't mm. remember any moments in the in the film this time where dialogue that you were meant to hear got got drowned out. I know some you know sometimes you have these scenes where two characters are talking and you're definitely not meant to hear them talking because there's no sound coming out of their mouth and you hear the background instead. At this time I, I, I don't remember any dialogue being being drowned out. I mean maybe I'm wrong, but I'm I'm pretty sure it was I I I checked I checked the, the, the settings in that cinema to be honest. Yeah. Um, I mean, look. Overall, I think I thought this film was actually masterfully made. I think the cross cutting of timelines was superb. I was I was never lost. I thought it was absolutely just just it was on a absolutely done on a on a on a sixpence, like you said. It, it would turn it turn in the moment. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I thought again, if 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 the Oscar voters know anything about editing, this film will win the Oscar for best editing because you clearly see how beautiful. In the same way that the camera. The camera work in 1917 is, is is crucial to the way the story is told. The beauty of the, the editing, I, I I remember someone on someone else reviewing this talking about how how similar it is to JFK in the way that it cross cuts from scene to scene and complete mastery of the editing process means that whenever you cut, you're still you still totally understand where everything is. I thought it was absolutely brilliant for that. I felt in this that all the technique, all the Nolanisms, the sound everything are there to convey the power of the story because that moment where matt damon's general grove says this is the most important thing that's ever happened i felt that that film didn't just say it when matt damon said it i felt this film said it at so many points in the film because you just felt you felt the script and and someone i, I can't take complete credit for this because someone else mentioned the imitation game but i remember watching the imitation game now and thinking exactly the same thing right you've seen the imitation game right yeah i've seen it a couple of times so a brilliant potentially sort of difficult sort of central character comes up with this idea that a lot of people barely understand and this has to be put to work to literally save the world right how much less intense and gripping was the imitation game compared to Oppenheimer just because of the way the film was actually made 
The Imitation Game is a well-made film. It's well-acted and everything else. And you go, yes, we better save that. We better do that to stop the war and everything else. But at no point, I think, in The Imitation Game, do you just feel as gripped and, and fucking uh, absorbed in how important it is for this moment to go the way that it needs to go as the characters really would have been at the time. And at this time in this film, I felt what the characters were feeling every time in every scene. So, I mean, look, I mean, I, I, I have to say I'm more on board with the emotional stuff in Interstellar than you are. I, I have no notes and no criticisms of Interstellar. But I felt that emotionally, I, I felt completely swept up in this story at every single possible moment. Even the bits where Strauss and his fucking little, who gives a shit about Strauss and his world? But you just felt he looked at Oppenheimer and just hated some person because of his own perception of him. I thought that was a perfect expression of how, you know, heroes are discarded after they've outlived their usefulness, but also how Oppenheimer hated himself after the war. And I just, when they when they come back and give the verdict on whether he keeps his clearance, what does that fucking matter in the scheme of things? And yet in the moment, I felt the the way that was going to fucking break Emily Blunt's heart. Do you know what I mean? It was probably from her point of view. How can they fucking do this to, to Oppenheimer? Do you know what I mean? He doesn't deserve this. Do you know what I mean? And I just felt that emotional weight all the way through the film. Um, and I just thought it was just fucking masterfully made, you know? Oh, we've got a bit of um, echo there, mate. I don't know what's happened. Yeah, Orby pulled the cable out. Oh. Are you back? Yeah, I'm back. It was the headphone cable, so that's why you could hear yourself. All right, okay. We, okay, we're good now. Um, so... There has been some discussion. I think we've probably touched on all the all the sort of look again. I I I think what we're doing now is we finally this year. There's not been many films that actually get to this level. We're talking about a film that's actually on a, a genuine like you know on, on a level with some of the best films that have been made in, in in many years. And unpicking it the way we're unpicking it is what film fans love to do, right? It's like how 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 much better to actually have something where you're going at this level. Let's talk. You know, it's like. It's talking about an error that got made in the Champions League final rather than some fucking shit show when your team gets relegated to League One. Do you know what I mean? We're talking about a film that's performing at a very high level and as fans looking at things that might have done might have done differently everything else because this this is the fun of of, 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 of of film fandom. The other kind of criticism there's been of this film or, or discussion, shall we say, is how he, how he dealt with the female characters or whether, whether Nolan solved his female character problem with this film. What, what did you think of the female characters? Um, so obviously he's had these kind of criticisms leveled at him where he's not really written female characters very well and I did feel like he did try and give Kitty Oppenheimer that kind of that kind of stronger female lead supporting role but you know what I mean like the stronger female character and she had she has parts like, she has parts of the film which really comes into her own, doesn't she? And you know what I felt quite upsetting about it is that she was probably quite a strong and fierce woman, but it felt like it was only put in the film by Nolan because he'd been criticised for not having strong female characters. And I know he's not done that. He's done that because Katie Oppenheimer was obviously a very important character in the story. But I felt like people were just waiting for that kind of scene to happen. And I feel like you've got to kind of let Nolan naturally just kind of develop female characters now because now it's just a case of, oh, well, is this female character going to do this or is this female character going to do that? And it's it's just becoming like... The, I know we've just spoken at length that we're nearly two hours into the first um, f- first episode of the... Uh, the first real story of the episode and we've just spoken at length, that, but and it might sound hypocritical, but it feels like people are just kind of really going for things that should just happen naturally. Like, his next film might have 
a female lead and that might be a strong female character but a story yeah. about Oppenheimer it feels like oh why why have you not done loads of really strong female characters in this film it's like well because yeah. it's about a guy called J. Robert Oppenheimer you, you know you know what I think right I, I think what Nolan did with the female characters in this film was right for the female characters in this film in this setting in 1940s America I think you can't like you say it's a film about J. Robert Opp- 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 Oppenheimer try Try and put my teeth back and say that. But if you're going to make a film about him, right, lots of other characters get relatively limited screen time. Richard Feynman is one of the greatest physicists of all time. They're always going on about him in Big Bang Theory. He gets about two minutes in this film, some of which are when he's playing the fucking bongos. Do you know what I mean? There are lots of people who get limited screen time here because this is about Oppenheimer, a very, very blinkered tunnel vision guy who spent most of his life at firstly wrestling with who he was, then wrestling with trying to save the world with an atomic bomb, and then wrestling with the fact that he might have destroyed the world with his invention, the atomic bomb. And other characters are going to get a limited focus in this movie. So when uh, Olivia Thirlby's character comes in and someone and complains that someone asked her if she knew how to type, and she had to say that no, she didn't learn how to type when she was becoming one of the world's leading scientists. You go, and Oppenheimer smiles and says, yes, there you go. Tent three for you. I know. Do you know what I mean? It's like, there's a, there's a, there's obviously a bigger story for that character. There's obviously a big story for that woman's part in that movie. But that that this isn't that movie. Do you know what I mean? And I think he did as good a job as he as as, as he reasonably could have done for her. And I think he did as good a job as he reasonably could have done given the story he was telling for Florence Pugh's character and Emily Blunt's character. But it also highlights, I think, how Nolan writes characters and why he's been criticised in the past. Because while that was the right approach for this film, yeah. And I, I don't have a criticism of the way the female characters were portrayed in this film any more than the fact that there's only a couple of people of colour in this film. It's 1940s America, and these were people, these were scientists, that, 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 that they were a, a minority back then, right? The, um, the way he tells stories for female characters in his films is that almost always those characters are being seen through a man's eyes in some way. Probably his strongest female characters are probably in Interstellar, and yet they are still your focus, your point of view when you're watching that film is Matthew McConaughey. So you're you're watching in a loving way. He absolutely adores his daughter. He thinks his daughter's one of the fucking best people in the world, right? And you follow her doing amazing things and being the strong person, everything else. Murph is a, a great character, but Murph is a great character being watched by a father lovingly seeing my daughter is this amazing person who's going to save the world, right? And that's fine. As a father, I get I get why you would tell that story that way, right? But you're still not telling the character from a woman's point of view. And that whole thing about um, uh, Marion Cotillard's character in, in Inception, right? It's like, oh, she's this really limited person. She's this, just seen as this malevolent kind of figure. She's not a real, fully rounded human being. It's just, that's right, she's not. She's a memory. Do you know what I mean? Right? The bigger criticism is probably of... Um, uh, what she's now known as, or they're now known as Elliot Page, but you know the the that character is 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 underwritten in um in Inception, and you because they're just there to kind of do a, a part of the job. They're just a supporting character, but they always go on about Marion Cotillard's character. She's a fucking ghost. Do you know what I mean? How how full a character does a ghost need to be? Do you know what I mean? But I think what it highlights about Nolan is that f- for the most part in his films. His female characters are being seen through men's eyes, and if he is gonna if he is gonna dispel the criticism in another movie, the only way he's gonna do that is by um, uh, telling a story of a female character 
from her point of view, which which he might do in future. We'll find out if he's any good at it. Do you know what I mean? So I think the female character stuff is because I think the female character approach was right for this. Now, either that's Nolan playing to his strengths or it's just Nolan playing to what this story needed. It, it doesn't, I don't think, I personally, I don't think this film adds anything to the previous criticism of Nolan's treatment of female characters, but it doesn't, it doesn't prove he can write female characters either. Do you know what I mean? I mean, uh, I'm I'm just kind of sick of this shit. It's if Christopher Nolan wants to do a film about Dunkirk, then there will be no female leads in that film. Not mm. even female supporting roles. It will be a majority male film. Well, you, the, 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 only, about, the only way to have a female character in that is to actually go back to the map room back in London, which he didn't do. Right? That's not that's not what that right. film was meant. If to he be. wants to do a film about J. Robert Oppenheimer, then there will be supporting roles for Kitty Oppenheimer and the inclusion of Jean Tatlock, who was only really in this film to basically be referred to later as a link to Oppenheimer's potential Mm -hmm. views on communism. So if Christopher Nolan does these films because he wants to do these films, fucking leave him alone because it's not got you know, Charlie Theron playing Furiosa like she did in Mad Max Fury Road. You know what I mean? There are, I'm sure there'll be a film in the future that Christopher Nolan directs and there'll probably be a female lead or, you know, a female lead with a male lead and it'll be a, you know, there'll be a big presence for that female character. But until then, the only thing you can really criticise him on is that it took him till 2014 to have, like, a prominent female character. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I know Elliot Page has, you know, transition now so it's right. hard to kind of refer to but he but has so, had so, yeah, re- 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 yeah re- yeah that's a female character back then wasn't it yeah I, I, Anne Hathaway, yeah. like i it's, say it's I, just I, stupid man I, I, I tend to agree with you the discussion of how nolan um uh, treats his female characters should not take place on dunkirk or oppenheimer i think that those aren't those aren't where you look at how he writes female characters. I think you look at Tenet, what what you think about the the, the female character in that one, and you look at you know Inception to Stir and, and and judge those. Um, th- th- this is this 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 film should really be outside that debate because I think what he did about those characters, I think they're quite interesting characters. I think they're complex people with some sharp edges, but I think the way you see Florence Pugh's character is through the eyes of Robert Oppenheimer, a man who didn't fully understand her. And, and and I think that was a very interesting way to view her character because I still don't... I think he went to his grave not knowing why she killed herself. I think Nolan does a very good job of actually getting the viewer to understand, yeah, I think I understand her, but Oppenheimer doesn't. And I thought he did a very nice job of portraying those characters that way. So I don't think you can criticise what he did with this female character. So you just, the, the, it's just the debate remains open and you'll see what happens. Like you say, if he if he does a female character study as his next film, that will be, that'll be when to judge him. <sighs> But even if he doesn't, it's not a big deal. Yeah, for because, me anyway. But do you know what I mean? You know what I mean? No, like, no, so I agree. Let me, he, let me explain yeah. this. Let me explain this. So imagine I sit and watch you eat your breakfast and I I really want you to have I really want you to have Nutella on your toast. And mm-hmm. how many films has Nolan made? Say he's, he's made ten. Mm-hmm. Now in the ten days I watch you eat breakfast, you have butter. You have butter and marmite. You have you have soft cheese. You have strawberry jam. You have raspberry jam. You might even you might even have marmalade. You mm-hmm. might even you might go back to have butter and marmite on the eighth day. And it comes to the tenth day and I go Why didn't you have Nutella on your toast? Mm-hmm. And you go I just didn't fancy I didn't really fancy having Nutella on my toast. 
And I go, oh, does that mean you hate Nutella then? No. Just in those 10 days, I didn't fancy it. That's the same thing for Nolan. He's had these films where there's been potential for female characters. He's written them. I think he's done an okay job of it. And it's just the stories that he's written and the kind of universes and times of those, like the placement of those films. Unfortunately, women didn't really have as prominent a role as they should have and as they do now. And there's obviously still some ways to go with the way our society is now. But if you're telling me that you're annoyed that there wasn't a mad female magician in the prestige in 18, what was it, 1880s London? Mm-hmm. Yet he still had Scarlett Johansson, the woman she replaced, Christian Bale's wife. And yeah, those characters are prominent and play a very important role in those films. And I thought he'd written them really well. But everyone, everyone's really fucking annoyed because he, he didn't direct Barbie and he didn't fucking cast Margot Robbie as J. Robert Oppenheimer. You know what I mean? It's just fuck, fucking leave the guy alone. It really... Yeah, really no, no, I, I get it. I, I mean, I, I think it's... The, the, the fact is he's not alone in this. I mean, Martin Scorsese's films have predominantly been about male characters as well, right? Some people are better suited to some things than others and some people are more interested in some things than others. And I think you're just going to have to, ju- like you said, you're just going to have to judge Nolan on the films he actually does make rather than try and imagine what 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 he could have done differently. Because on the whole, I think Dunkirk is, the, Dunkirk is the only film of his that's a failure for me. And it's a failure for me because everything is too downplayed and too downbeat. It looks like there was only two boats and one Spitfire, right? I've, I, I just, I don't think Nolan has done many films that are big female stories. And that's, he's done films he's interested in. Like you say, you're trying to legislate what he hasn't done and imagine what it would have been done if he, if he had. I, 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 I tend to agree with you. Let's see how he does with his next film. And you might, you might look back on a career and go, yeah, his films were more about men than they were about women. He will not be the first film director people have said that about. But do you know what's mental is that people are annoyed that, or, or you know, analysing the way his female characters are written. At the exact same fucking time that this film has come out, the highest grossing film of the year, the highest grossing film with a female lead, is also out at the same time and is blowing Oppenheimer out of the water by about 600 million US dollars. Mm-hmm. And people are fucking annoyed because... Emily Blunt didn't have a fucking soliloquy in the fucking second act of the film. Fuck off, man. Just fuck off. I would, yeah, look, all I, all I would say is I I agree that there are some people like that. I think the majority of people, their, their view of this is much more nuanced and most people, I think, are assessing Nolan on what he's actually done with this film. So I, I wouldn't, I'm not as bothered about it as you are simply because I don't think there's that many people whose opinion I care about are actually saying anything that, that like that. They won't shut up until he does a film about Florence Nightingale that pl- is played by Meryl Streep and he de-ageifies Meryl Streep and she fucking cures cancer and she does it because she's a woman. And that'll be the only reason they'll shut up about his writing of women. It's ridiculous. Leave yeah, the guy alone. Yeah, look, all, all I'll say is, mate, those people are a lot more on the fringes than sometimes it appears. And I think the majority of opinion about Oppenheimer has been pretty kind of fair and very complimentary. I've just been slagging off the way he ended the film and now I'm defending the guy. <laughs> I'm very confused. Those are the new films uh, th- this month, which gave us a lot to talk about. We now come to the uh, the final part of Double Monthly, in which we talk about our resolutions for the year. Um, what we've decided to do is 
uh, a, a bit of a film project each where we watch certain films uh, and it kind of gathers a bit of a body of work through the year. Uh, James, yours was partly through the year given its title Legal Cage of Consent in which you watch a Nicolas Cage film uh, chosen for you at random by uh, a tool on the internet. Uh, what were you given to watch this month? I was given The Wicker Man. Oh, excellent. Now we've already covered already covered this this podcast on the remake hate watch, but your that might have been before you actually started doing all the features. So your perspective on it will be interesting. It's an absolute disaster. Um, it's terrible. It's got no nothing redeemable about it. But if you just want to sit there, crack open a nice a nice beer, and just sit down and be blown away that someone greenlit this film and said yeah this is a very good idea with Nicolas Cage full batshit crazy Nicolas Cage I mean he walks he walks around in a bear suit and just punches somebody out without warning there's madness madness from the beginning of this film he stood in a kitchen with an old woman he knocks her out (laughs) and then obviously the the final the final scene of not the bees, not the bees. It's it's I one of it's, it launched a thousand memes, didn't it? Yeah, it, honestly, it it's so so bad, and you have to have to watch it. It's like uh, the room. It's, it's just so terrible. It's awful, but you need to watch it just to kind of because I think what's good about it is that if you start watching other. Like later Nicolas Cage films, like what was the one he did about the pig? Was that just called Pig? Pig, yeah. And then he did, was it Molly? Mandy. Mandy. Oh, same drug. Fucking um, <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>, hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> same drug that he'd consumed copious amounts of well, before he went on to the set of Wicked Man. Yeah, but. It makes you think, right, he's obviously... Because he obviously did... like He had a really strong 90s and then a really mental um, noughties. And then he sort of came back at the end of the... the, the was it? The 10s and then the 20s. We're kind of interested to see what he does now. So I think you need to see this film to kind of think it's part of the, the kind of Nicolas Cage redemption story. Um, yeah. I mean, do you... I mean, he is absolutely batshit in this film in a way that he hadn't been in a while. There was this element of... Earlier films like that one where he goes on about being a vampire and was it Vampire's Kiss or something? Just some of that early crazy mad stuff. And he just found a little niche for himself as a much more kind of stoic, like action hero. And even in um, uh, Face Off, the, the cage madness sort of had a context. But this, he just goes completely off the deep end. And do you, do you think he always intended to do that for this film? Or do you think he started to do that once he realised that there was no chance of this being a good film? I just think he didn't have a director to kind of channel it well. Or give Nicolas Cage, you know, a kind of direction to go with the character. He just thought, oh, Nicolas Cage is, you know, it'll, it'll gain interest. And Nicolas Cage went, all right, okay. I'll just go fucking bananas then. And that's just what happened. Yeah, it does feel like the rest of the film, no one's actually particularly got an angle on the story, why they're even there or why they're even doing it. And Cage comes in and goes, well, I know why I'm fucking doing this, and goes, Wah! there's no um, the, it, there's no indication that the um, 
the director it's not I, I, I genuinely don't think the director of the film will have sat down with Nicolas Cage and strategized this I think the director of this film took this movie it, none, nothing else worked and the only thing that's kind of notable about this film I mean if, if any if, if anyone else if Nick, Nick Cage had come in and played this straight or anyone else had played his character and played it straight you'd have just gone meh shouldn't have done it boring dull but we're actually talking about the Wicker Man and people people who haven't even seen the Wicker Man will have seen gifts from this uh, like uh, fr from this film all over the internet he's he's it's it's hard to describe what he's done here without just showing <laughs> just watch the yeah, film and try and work out what the it. hell he's done with it so i mean it, it didn't i mean did you uh, i mean you've seen it before did you glean anything new from this viewing no it's shit it's really bad it's really 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 bad there's nothing else to add it's shit but it's entertaining yeah, it's it's it's, like it's, it's entertaining it's entertaining because he goes full cage in it because otherwise yeah. it's it does i mean without sort of re, you know relitigating what we discussed about it in in the in the remake hate watch it's it's nothing like as good as the original film they decide to make the whole thing pg13 in which case why bother none of the changes of setting or anything else make any difference there is they've decided to make it more of a female led society but they don't do anything interesting with that it's like uh, it it's just you know what they've done is they've started with it's it, it's the mid 2000s it's the, between the year 2000 2009 we are remaking all the films that all, all the sort of classic horror films of the past and we're going to do it badly and any attempt to kind of put a new spin on it it's just like some half-hearted let's justify to ourselves why we're doing this shit and it wouldn't stand out for for any other reason except that Nick Cage has just opened up both barrels from the beginning to the end of the film. Absolutely. Well, there we are. Anything else to add on the Wicker Man in Legal Cage of Consent? No, it's it, watch it but hate it. <laughs> hate it and love it. Yep. So yeah, James, you'll be back with your ninth entry in this next month. We don't know what it's going to be because unlike my list, where I sort of plan and curate what I'm going to do, you are just you get thrown something. It's like you you're, you're standing in front of one of those kind of machines that chucks a tennis ball out, and you, you just have to react to what you yeah. get, right? Um, so that's it. It's another another surprise for James in the legal cage of consent will arrive next month. So my. Um, my uh, resolution and film project for this this year is known as the Cronenberg Institute. Uh, this is where I watch 12 David Cronenberg films, which is nine films of his I haven't seen in chronological order of release, and then three classics at the end. We're getting towards the end of the films of his I haven't seen. We're in the 2010s now, late career Cronenberg, and this film is called Cosmopolis. Have you seen this, mate? Uh, no, I have not. But uh, it's you, the one with Robert Pattinson. Yeah, you may be aware of this. This was one of Robert Pattinson's kind of one of his earliest films. He, I mean, I don't know if he'd finished doing Twilight by then. He might have done, and this is one of the first films he did outside that. This is Robert Pattinson trying to distance himself as much as possible from the character he played in Twilight. And I think one of the reasons that I avoided this film or didn't really watch this film when it first came out was probably I was still a bit of a Pattinson skeptic at that point. Um, which I've certainly got over now. I think he's a terrific actor. Twilight was a, a, a job opportunity he got and did a good job of back in the day. He's proved himself to be capable of a range of other things since. Uh, you know, fair play to him. Good actor. Part of the reason I wasn't super keen on watching this film is that I wasn't sure whether it was going to work. And why don't I kind of lay out what the story is and, you know, you can judge for yourself or you think this this idea is going to work. It tells the story of a young billionaire, a 28-year-old kind of whiz kid who is like he's a combination of like 
tech savvy but also kind of speculating on the markets and he's made billions betting on currencies using some technology algorithms that he's invented and he goes across town in his state-of-the-art limousine slash office to get a haircut um, which people think is a bit weird because he's got to go across town to get a haircut rather than get the hairdresser to come to him in his office why is he doing this he's disappearing across town his world is falling apart at this moment his, his company is losing tons of money in a single day his personal world is falling apart. His relationships are going all over the place. And the world is falling apart. There is a huge financial crash. People are protesting on the streets, attacking his limousine because he's a, you know, he's a symbol of the, the rich 1% billionaires who are fucking up the planet. And he's just kind of, in the middle of this, decides to go off and have a haircut. And over the course of this kind of odyssey across the city, I guess it's supposed to be New York, people he knows get in the limousine and talk to him he goes to different places he's diverted away from where he wants to be because there's stuff going on with the, there's a presidential visit there's a, an assassination attempt on the president uh a, a, there's a celebrity funeral all of this weird shit is going on and he doesn't seem to care that his world is falling apart he seems to be some sort of just almost diseased person who stopped caring you know he doesn't even care that he's rich he doesn't even care that he's about to not be rich and you're watching it's really a character study of like a like a hateful billionaire do you know what i mean and what i i, I don't know what you think of that is that is that something you'd sit down and watch mate um, yeah maybe it doesn't sound as weird as his other films yeah i mean it it is like a it is like a maybe film for me because there, there was an element of if you're going to tell a story about the 1%, you know, you are going to spend just an hour and a half to two hours in the company of someone you absolutely despise and don't care about but that can be very compelling like in succession you know um, and I wasn't sure if the whole story playing out more or less in the limousine was going to work. Do you know what I mean? I can see why he did it, right? I can see why a filmmaker would go, ah, it's a character study of a billionaire and everything takes place inside his limousine. I can see half a dozen film directors' eyes lighting up going, oh, that would be an interesting challenge to make. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's based on a novel by a guy called Don DeLillo, who is a, a writer I really like. I haven't read all of his books. I haven't read this one. But he's a very interesting writer. He wrote Libra, which we mentioned on the pod when we were talking about um, uh, JFK and how they might have kind of used that as more of a basis for his um, uh, films than, uh, than than that Oliver Stone because it's got a really strong kind of thriller element but talks about the conspiracy to kill Kennedy. He also did a film called, uh, wrote a book called Underworld, which is this amazing uh, sort of odyssey through sort of 20 or 30 years of American history through the eyes of a number of characters. Brilliantly written book. My general thought on these this guy's books is that they're pretty much unfilmable. And I'm going to say, as interesting as this is, and I like Pattinson and I love Cronenberg, and I thought this was an interesting idea. Um, I don't think it altogether works. And I think the underlying problem is that this film is, um, is basically, is this book is unfilmable. Um... There are a couple of things I'd have I'd have done differently. Even so, the the focus on Robert Pattinson sitting in his limousine, not giving a shit, sort of lessens the impact of the fact that like people are throwing like dead rats at his at his limousine. People are rioting outside, and his life might be in danger. Because if he doesn't give a shit, why do I give a shit? You know. Yeah. And I know that the director is trying to portray a character who's so kind of removed. It's almost like. He's got so much money, he doesn't know what to do with himself. He can have anything he wants, so he stops caring about anything he has, you know? Do you remember we watched that film Wadja in The Hidden Gems about a little sad girl and all she wants is a bike, yeah? 
but because she's a girl in Saudi Arabia, the idea of her getting a bike is not an easy thing to get. Right. And she loves that bike. Do you know what I mean? All she wants is that bike, and that's such a simple thing. And when she gets that bike, she's the fucking happiest little girl in the whole wide world. And it's so emotionally kind of compelling that she really wants even that small, simple thing. A lot of us are quite lucky. If we want a bike, we get a bike, you know? This yeah. guy is the opposite of that. He can have absolutely anything he wants. And as a result, he does not give a shit about anything. And I understand that. And I think I agree with everything David Cronenberg is saying about rich people and financial markets and the world at large. But that disconnected, apathetic character is hard to care about. And it just separates you from the story a little bit. A couple of really powerful scenes, a couple of real shocks in the film, some good performances. Um, uh, the, the guy who played the sort of the nerdy character in um, Tropic Thunders in it, Jay Baruchel. Uh, Paul Giamatti's in it. There's some there's some good there's some good actors in it. Um, that French actress that I always get her name mixed up. The one was in one of the Three Colors films. Good 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 actors, good performances, everything else. This film got a lot of love at Cannes, and some people like it. Um, it's hard to watch a Cronenberg film that doesn't have anything worth watching. There is some genuine stuff worth watching in this, but it came as no surprise to me that this is his lowest rated film on IMDb. I mean, whatever IMDb is worth, right? Um, it is, um, it's an interesting film. It's an interesting idea. It doesn't quite come off and, you know, fair play to a director for trying something a bit different. This just didn't quite work for me. Um, People, you know, I'd recommend people watch it for themselves. They might get more of it than I did. There are people who absolutely love this film and there are people that, that it left cold. And Cronenberg films can be like that. But, I mean, this is a 5.1 on IMDb. And I think there's... IMDb scores a bit weird, aren't they, mate? Because there are there are films that are rated really highly that... Or there are films that are quite shit that are, like, between 6 and 7 and you wonder how they got such a high rating. And there are obviously a few, like, terrible films that are in the bottom 100 that got, like, 2 out of 10. But quite often, when a film is only five out of ten on IMDb, it means it's it's not very good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, an interesting idea that didn't quite work, and uh, not not my favorite. Nothing like my favorite Cronenberg. Probably my least favorite Cronenberg film that I've watched in this process. But I'm, look, I'm still glad I saw it. I'm still glad I engaged with his ideas. Um, but inspired by that, um, I always do an impromptu top 10, unless I forget, um, of uh, of the film project that I do. And for this, I'm going to do 10 films uh, which reminded me, or Cosmo Cosmopolis reminded me of, because they too were adaptations of supposedly unfilmable novels. Uh, these films work to, to, to differing degrees for differing reasons. But here is my list of top 10 uh, films that were made from novels that they didn't think could be turned into a film. Uh, Adaptation, Catch-22, Slaughterhouse-Five, Denis Villeneuve's Dune, Part 1, Naked Lunch, American Psycho, High Rise, A Clockwork Orange, Orlando, and Trainspotting. It's funny that um, Cronenberg's got another um, uh, entry on here, Naked Lunch, because no one thought that could be turned into a film either. So... I think that's a very interesting, diverse range of films. Some of those actually work, and they were wrong that the films were that the books were unfilmable. One or two of these uh, of these films prove that the books really were unfilmable. But uh, an interesting list, and I recommend you check them out. So that's my um, that's my Cronenberg entry for this month. Uh, for September, it's going to be Maps to the Stars. The, that's the last of the Cronenberg films I'm going to be discussing that I haven't seen before, and then we're, we're going to be doing some proper Cronenberg classics to close out the year. Uh, any more thoughts for the uh, Double Room Monthly, mate? Uh, no. 
Well, I think that's us. On that bombshell, we're going to bring this epic Double Run Monthly to a close. I think the reason we discussed so long is that Oppenheimer gave us a lot to talk about, and and thank God that it did. I think it's uh, it's not been the best year for films at that level. I'm glad we had something that gave us that much to talk about. But thank you very much, and we'll see you next week, or you'll hear us next week on The Features. That's all for the latest edition of Double Real Monthly. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Next week, we'll be back with our regular features. First up will be our classics and recommended feature, where we finally get round to watching Rio Bravo. Then our hidden gem, where we tell you why you should get round to watching American Made. In the one that got away, we'll tell you about John Borman's Lord of the Rings, and in the remake Hate Watch, we look at the 2011 version of Conan the Barbarian. We look forward to you joining us then. Look after yourselves in the meantime and see you on the other side.